There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. If you uh, listen to the Meat Eater podcast, and obviously you do because here you are listening to it, or watch the show Meat Eater on Netflix, you have seen and kind of met our buddy Remy Warren, who is, I'll say it, I've said it before and I'll say it again, one of the most just skilled, accomplished hunters I've ever had the pleasure of spending time out in the woods with. We are launching a new podcast with Remy called Cutting the Distance. And in Cutting the Distance, it's not like a conversational show. Cutting the Distance is an educational show where Remy walks you through situations and scenarios from his life and gives you like actionable, usable information, instruction, intelligence, inspiration about how to become a better hunter. And there's no one more suited to give you this information than Remy Warren. So go find it, Cutting the Distance, the same place as you can find the Meat Eater podcast. Give it a listen. Give it a review. Cutting the Distance with Remy Warren. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. Uh, Jesse Griffith, are you interested? Um, you okay if we talk about uh, death? Death fo- dead folks for a minute sure you don't mind starting out that way I, it, oh it's it's <laughs> nice it's it's a good icebreaker we're sitting here in your restaurant tell yeah. people where we are uh we're in uh we're on the east side of austin texas at Daidue. uh early in the morning just about to uh get ready for lunch service about See, to talk about death tell people about uh the name Daidue. Daidue is uh and how you kind of regret it uh, yeah it's it's part of a 
<laughs> no, it's spot on. Part of an Italian proverb um, that means from the two kingdoms of nature, choose food with care. I saw it in a book a long That's time ago. That's good, though, man. I would have just named the damn restaurant that. The whole, well, in Italian, I should have just done the whole thing and insisted that everybody always say the entire <laughs> name every time. Yeah. Um, no, I just didn't, done it in English. Oh. Tell me the title again. From the Two Kingdoms of Nature, Choose Food with Care. Oh, it's good. Yeah. yeah. They mean plant and animal. That, see, that's contentious. Oh, because that's what I would take it to mean nowadays. Yeah, it could be land and sea. could be plant and animal. It wasn't specified in the book. I, mean, I, like, I kind of like that ambiguity, too. Um, when did you stumble across that? Oh, years ago. You look yeah. real Italian. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. I'm, jo- I'm joking. Yeah. yeah he yeah. doesn't look remotely Italian. No, no, no. You at look all. like a Scotsman. Welsh. 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 Okay. Yeah. A Welshman? A Welshman. Uh, yeah, to, to be clear. I'm a Welshman that owns a restaurant with an Italian name that serves mostly Mexican and German food. <laughs> the old Mexican German? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, we came across that and uh, I, I really liked it and. Settled on that for name of that hypothetical restaurant that I wanted to always own, and then I stuck to it. So we got corrected. Sure, everybody does. Uh, I mean, politely, I here hope. in the capital city of Texas, we mentioned to a press officer. Oh, is that isn't that who squared? What were we calling? Yeah. It? We were calling it died Dway. I guess. Yeah. And he said, "You say it again, died Dway." Yeah, that's yeah, it was right. A slight. It was a slight Dewey. correction. It's a slight correction. You pronounce it like my mom does. To this day. Your mom doesn't know how to say it? She's going to listen to this, so I'm going to say she just <laughs> says it her own way. Got it. Okay, uh, on to the sobering stories I was going to tell you about. We, uh, just to bring you up to speed, I know you're a busy man. We did a podcast recently with uh, our good friend Pat Durkin, and Pat Durkin, is a, he's a great admirer of obituaries, of hunters, and he was telling us about this obituary he read where a guy had died hunting. And in the obituary, it said that it was an otherwise successful hunt. (laughs) (laughs) But this guy wrote it with this, it's kind of this crazy story where he said his dad, this guy, he's in New York, and he said his dad had always joked that if he can ever get a 10-point buck, he, he knows he'll die. Like his death prophecy was he'll shoot a 10-point and die. So one day he's hunting and shoots a buck and walks over there and counts and there's 10 points and he stands up and he thinks to himself, oh boy, now it will come. But nothing happens and he lives. And his kids had always joked when he made his prophecy that he would kill a 10-point buck and die. His kids always joked that we're going to drag the buck out of the woods and then we'll come back and get you. Eight years goes by from when he gets a 10-point. And they're all out hunting in the woods. Their mother's there. Kids are there. Dad's there. And they're checking in with Dad on the radio. The dad shoots. Um, they check in. He's got one. They're going to check back in a little bit. And eventually he keeps trying to get his dad on the radio. But he can't raise him. So he eventually walks over and finds his dad laying, sitting against a tree, stone dead. Just like a heart attack, just killed him. Calls the mom and brother, everybody comes over to the tree and they have a big cry. Then they're trying to figure out, because he did shoot, 
and they go find where he had shot a buck and it was an eight point buck and he'd shot an eight point buck had dragged it a little ways had gutted it must have not been feeling good went back and sat against his tree and expired and they called the medical you know called 911 and everything and they came out and they were going to load him on this little gurney thing to carry him out of there and the kids grabbed the buck and they said they had the buck back to the truck before dad was it's a good story it's a good story you like that one yanni i do you uh, left out that little detail about where he drug it from you do that purposely no tell me about how it was on the neighbors you know what i'm talking about yeah i read the email oh he drug it off the neighbors <laughs> yeah. i didn't even remember that part so i sort of in, in my mind I, I was kept thinking like it wasn't really like shooting the buck that did it it's it was, a long email i'm trying to it, it was the fact that he had like shot it on the neighbors just slightly because remember he goes the son goes and kind of backtracks because i think he ends up finding the the heart and the liver maybe um anyways he backtracks and he goes oh he shot it just onto the neighbors oh no so, no you're confusing another story the same dude told i'm gonna come back to that story because this tells the character of his old man but go ahead no i know okay but that, no, that was a whole other story right about the hearts and the livers it was yeah. but he still backtracked his dad's dying buck to the neighbors oh and so i felt like it wasn't really necessarily just the killing the buck it was the fact that like it was on the neighbors, and all of a sudden there had to be this great, uh, there's excitement and you know exertion of quickly dragging it, you know, under over a fence, and you know if you're not used to doing that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, he said backtracked, I head down the hill and find a blood trail. I take it to where I can see where the deer had fallen, about 40 yards onto the neighboring property. I see where the buck had been dragged, guts in, up a steep hill to our side of the property line. There it was gutted. Here's the thing that speaks to the character of his old man. He says he's out hunting with his old man, and they're hunting just north of Syracuse. And uh, they're out in the woods. He's 12, even though he wasn't supposed to be hunting at that age. And he hears a shot behind him. His dad's sitting somewhere. He's sitting here. And the kid, the guy that's writing in, hears a shot, bam, behind him. And he gets cold and wants to wander around, so he goes back to investigate what happened at the shot and realizes the guy had gutted a deer um, and left the heart and liver. So he takes the heart out of the gut pile and later winds up back at the truck to meet up with his dad. And his dad explains, you know, I found some gut pile and the guy only took the heart, so I grabbed the liver. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, the other dude wrote in. Hold on, let me check this one real quick. Here's another one about guys dying. This kid, his uncle's got type 1 diabetes and dies from complications of type 1 diabetes. And he had had the lower part of his right leg amputated at the knee down. Did I make clear that this is his kid's uncle? No. There's a hunter, there's a dude, okay? There's this mug who's a kid, kiddish. His uncle dies. His uncle dies of complications from type 1 diabetes. And not only that, but in his struggles with the disease, had had his right leg removed from the knee down. Okay. He dies a few days before deer opener. They have the wake on the opener. 
So he can't go out hunting in the morning. Gets through the funeral deal, runs out to go hunting. Here comes a nice buck, shoots the buck, buck falls over, and he comes down and realizes that the buck is missing from the knee down of the leg. That's, um, that's bizarre. Yeah. I think that he speaks to Yanni because Yanni believes in like summoning stuff and whatnot. That he summoned a three-legged uh, deer? I also believe just in <laughs> amazing coincidence. <laughs> You're comfortable with amazing coincidence? Yeah. Yanni, can we, should we get into the corner crossing thing? Because this has been, uh, sorry to be taking up all your time here, Jesse. You're not taking up my time. It's all right. Um, are there no more stories about death? No, I got more. Oh. But one's too sad. I'll tell you. No, no, not, we'll no, talk no. about corner. No, I'm going to tell you the super sad one. It's just like it's, it's like, it's almost like you shouldn't even bring it up. Well, maybe you shouldn't. Really? You want to hear a quick one where uh, no one dies? Yes. But there's an injury? Fine. It's not a bad injury. Great. I was sharing a story about my brother-in-law. You familiar with uh, barefoot skiing? You a skier? How old are you? I'm not a skier. But you remember when people used to water ski a lot before they all start wakeboarding? Yes, I do. And you, are you familiar with barefoot skiing? I, no, but if I've If I gathered... say, hey, man, we were out barefooting for the weekend. No, I'd have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> skiing with no skis. Okay. Just standing there barefoot. This is not something I ever learned how to do nor tried. Snow skiing. No, man, water skiing water with, no skiing skis. with no skis. Okay. So, like, my brother-in-law used to be into this. He, you, lay, you put a wetsuit on, and you lay it on your back in the water. And you got the, rope in, the ski handle, rope handle in your hands. And you take your bare feet and imagine, like, you're stretched out. Mm-hmm. Feet toward the boat. And you take your feet, and, and you're, like, holding a rope between your feet. And you angle your toes like a little ramp. And the boat just, there he goes, takes off. And you eventually get where you're skimming along the water surface. Then in a dramatic move, you spring up. And then you're skiing with no skis. Just toes curled up. Hauling ass. You got to be going fast to yeah, get that kind of. you got to go fast. Am I mistaken that you got to go like uh I'm not going to know the speed. 36 or something like that. And people, a lot of people ski at 25 or something. Either way, you're hauling ass. Well, my brother-in-law, I was telling about on this here uh, digital radio program, my brother-in-law, whap, hits a sunning bluegill and drove the dorsal fin up into his foot. Oh, God. And had to have it surgically removed. Well, this guy is writing in. They used to have this big high dive. You see where this is going? Yeah. What fish? Just. <laughs> I feel like he hit a yellow perch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hit a yellow perch. Drove the dorsal fin up into his foot. Ooh. Took him a while to figure out what happened. No, yeah. no, no, not his foot. His head. His head. Oh, he that, dove. Oh, he dove. And at first, he thought he had just opened up his yeah, hands. Why do I, if I'm bringing up, why don't you bring up the damn stories? You know them so well. well I told, I just told you, I had, they're all sitting in a stack, all printed out, highlighted and shit on my desk. But I didn't know that we were doing this thing at at uh, well, if, if you're like Joe, story the dudes wrote <laughs> in about, tell the damn stories. Hits in his head. That's why. 
he calls his his email is called the Bluegill Top Fin Story Topper. Maybe. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's good, but it's not as good as mine. His isn't as good as mine. Well, yeah, his is better because it happened to him. That helps. Mine just happened to my brother-in-law, and I wasn't even there. But mine's better. Something about barefoot skiing makes it better. That, or maybe that it had to be surgically removed. This guy's dad, I think, just got it out with a pair of pliers or something. You're right. Needle nose pliers. What else we got? You got one more second? Yeah. Let's see if I know this next one. You don't. <laughs> you don't. One last one. This is, this is going to be... Are you ready for a touching one? Is it injury or death? No, it's just that someone wanted me to say hi to his kid. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're saying hi to a little kid named Mac McDonald. Mac McDonald. Mac McDonald, nine years old, likes to hunt deer. Okay, ready? Tell people what you're going to do tonight. I'm going flounder gigging tonight. Talk about that for a minute, because that's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's probably my favorite uh, outdoor activity, if I had to name one, because it's, it's, uh, it's fish hunting, I think. Go out in a boat. Uh, it's got a big bank of lights on the front. You go out, uh, ride at dark. Get there when it's uh, as, just as the sun's going down. You put the lights out, and you start cruising around in about... Do you mind sharing with people uh, what state this occurs in? Oh, this is Texas. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to be in the Rockport area. A lot of flounder gigging happens on the middle coast, kind of that Rockport. Um, and that's the Gulf of, Pass. Gulf of Mexico. Gulf, Gulf of Mexico. Mexico. It's the, it's, yeah, it's on the bay side. And so there's, uh, it's on the bay side of the barrier islands uh, in there. You, you don't do it out in the Gulf, per se, but like in the, gotcha. in the bays. And uh, go out there and just cruise around till you see uh, a flounder that's uh, kind of buried itself in the, in the sand or in the oyster shell. Uh, and you just look for a flounder shape. And after a while, you get good at spotting it. It's like, you know, it's like spotting anything like a morel or a, or a blackberry, you know, where it takes you a minute to... That's funny. Steve was just writing some voiceover for a show about sight image. Sight image and he used, he used the... Uh, the morel analogy. Exa- example. Yeah. Well, you once know? you see one, then you see more. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... That not the other day. The other day I saw one. Wham! And then never find the second one, man. There's really? always a second one. Huh. Yeah. But go on. Well, I mean, you, you, it's the same thing. You just, you're looking for that shape. Um, I mean, there's some false alarms, and sometimes they're really buried in there. But then you have a, a long. You're in an airboat. Yeah, you're in an airboat. The only, the only downside of the whole thing, that, that the only thing that I don't really enjoy is the noise from the airboat. Oh, it drives me nuts, man. Yeah. You, it, you wear ear pro, right? No, it's not that don't? loud. Oh. It, it's just an, it's an annoyance. But it's so beautiful with the, I mean, the clear water, and you see all the sea life. You see there's blue crabs and stingrays and redfish and drum and sheep's head and mullet. And, Can you uh, screw your mullet? Uh, you know, there's certain months that you can't. Um, I have. Um, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations is up on that one. So You got some I, big I ass. I was just fishing down out of Rockport yeah. for redfish. Yeah, oh, there's some big mullet down there. You no, I, I, some freaking giant mullet were to the point where I would see him up ahead and think I was looking at a redfish coming our way. Right. Yeah, that's some big like ones. Throwing awake and shit. You know? Yeah. 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 No, I, I stuck a mullet and we uh, and we we filleted it and smoked it. It's actually pretty good because most of the, that's one of those trash fish they'll tell you you can't eat. Uh, we also you talking like white mullet? Is that is, yeah. You know, yeah yeah jumping mullet? They call them. Yeah. Don't they? yeah yeah. 
Me and my brother Danny, when we when we used to backpack in Mexico fishing a lot, we would catch them just to eat them, cook yeah. them on a campfire, you know. Yeah, they're fine. Yeah, they're fine. And gar too. Will when we've gigged up in the up way into the Colorado River, from the bay up into the river, and you'll see a lot of gar up there, and we've gigged those as well. Uh, I want to talk more about the flounder gigging, but why? Uh, why? Why do some guys use? Why don't people use bow rigs, bow fishing rigs? You can absolutely. Yeah. Is, is a gig more effective? I think it is. I mean, the guides probably prefer that. I mean, that's just you spend less what, time chasing arrows and shit. Yeah, you know? what they do, and because when you're moving in an airboat, what we found with bows is you shoot, and then you immediately go over the right, and then your things, your arrows stuck in the bottom of the damn lake. Right, the boats. 50 yards down there, not that far, but, you know. Yeah. We're this is less efficient. Moving yeah. pretty slow in this boat. And uh, he, he carries, the, the captain carries a gig with him up in the front of the boat. When he sees a flounder, he drives it into the ground and stops that boat. And That's a good trick, man. Real quick. And just, I mean, you just come to an immediate and harsh stop. And then he points and you gig. Sometimes you can't see it. And he's just like, it's right there. You're like, Where? And uh, I mean, and then you'll and it'll just like it'll it'll just appear, um, and then you gig it, and you have like a real kind of graceful swooping motion to get it back into the boat, into a big metal box, and then get the gig off, and then keep going after them, and it's just it's a lot of fun. I mean, and it's a limit of five fish, five per person. What's and a big one? A big one is I I mean I I think a big flounder is over sixteen inches. I mean people might disagree with that, but that's I mean that's a sizable flounder. Um, a really big one is, you know, three or four pounds pushing, you know, 20 plus inches. And uh, biggest one I've ever gigged was eight and a half pounds. And it was, I don't remember the length, but probably the 26 inch range. It was a monster. Are you um, reluctant to share the name of the guy you like to go with for fear that he will become overbooked yeah. and you will have a hard time getting a slot or it's are a, you generous or are you right. so generous i'm i'm generous and but i'm and i've named him before and, and don't, I, i'm not telling you i don't i don't want you to name him because i might go with him i'm getting mixed <laughs> i'm getting mixed signals here but you know yanni's the fairest person i know ask yanni yanni oh well, go, what about this i have a suggestion yeah. I mean, yanni's the most reasonable fairest person i've ever met what if wow thanks we go flounder gigging with said captain, and then after that, you release the name of this captain. I like it. You mean like we as in the people here at this table? Yeah. You mean you and your daughter tonight? Yeah, it's me and my daughter tonight. Oh. Well, he's not going to, he's yeah. not going to like. Nothing's going to change in the next 24 hours. Tonight. He's not going to cancel you to take some other hoser. Who <laughs> no, I know that. I'm thinking into the future. I am. I mean, but it, it, he's, he is booked solid. And he also does late yeah, trips. It sounds like he couldn't be any busier anyway. Yeah, but what are you going to do he when he catches wind? What if he catches wind that you did not name? Were presented with an oh. opportunity to plug his business and declined. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 not only getting mixed signals now. I'm starting to feel trapped. Well, what I would do is I would say this. I would say, uh, you should say this. Say over the years of fishing with this gentleman, I've developed a deep love for him and concern for him. And since I can't vet and control the kind of riffraff that might come and book a trip with him <laughs> and potentially put him in a compromising situation. I wouldn't want to do this because what I rather do is spend time hand picking clients that I send his way who I know are good tippers. Oh, he, he, 
he'll if he heard that he'd know I was full of shit. So, oh. it matter, so. <laughs> so you're not gonna stay. You're not just gonna say that. Let's not name him because I want to go. It's just about after to name I go. Him. Oh, you were. I was. Yeah. Plus, I want Yanni to decide. His, no, you, you got to do you name him because the name of his charter service is so good. It's a good hint. It's uh, Captain David Dupnik with Surrender at Sunrise out of Rans's Pass. No, that's not it. Surrender at Sunrise. Surrender at Sunrise. I don't think you should have done that, man. <laughs> Come on. I think it's okay. Like I mean, I said, I, I Jesse have. was just telling me, man, the guy only takes off, only doesn't work in November, and that's because gigging season's closed. He works every other day of the year. So, And he takes two trips a night. He'll take a late trip tonight. Like when we get back, he has people on call, and they'll show up at midnight and go back out, and he'll take two trips. He's a maniac. But here's the deal. When you and me go down there to go do this, which we're going to do, um, is he going to give whoever he's got lined up, is he going to boot him? No. To make room for us? Well, I mean, I, actually, I can't speak for him, but I doubt that. We're going to let's just, we're gonna have to book a little further in advance now. Even though he's going to know that we sent a ton of business his way. It's the right thing to do. Okay. Yanni was right. Uh, he always gets his limit. Uh, yes. <laughs> He doesn't like to go home. No. No, he doesn't like to go. Surrender at sunrise. Yeah, he doesn't like to go home until <laughs> he gets his limit. And he's adamant about it. And he's, he is good at it. I call him the human egret. The man can see <laughs> a fish in the mud, uh, you know, 15 feet to your left, and you're standing to his left. It's, it's uncanny. And that big flounder that I, that I gigged, I'm not going to say I saw, he said it was so buried in the sand that all he saw, and this was, in a, this was in December during a cold front, and we were in deep water, probably two to three feet of water, um, and it was windy. And he said all he could see were the eyes, and he could tell <laughs> from how far apart those eyes were that, that was a big flounder. But he, he told me that. I mean, so it's, it's, it's real. He said, that is a big flounder, and I looked down. All I saw was white sand and waves, and he just grabbed the gig and said, Push down here. <laughs> so, I mean, my, my big trophy flounder was more of just like me um, applying gravity to a pole. And, that's, uh, that's what we laugh about with guides and clients. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of guide client situations where the guy would have honestly done a lot better. Oh, had oh, the client yeah. not been oh, there. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, oh, yeah. Like, oh my god, you're adding nothing. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. detracting. Yeah, that's like, like a contracting joke. I remember someone said once is um. In describing a bad employee, he said, having that guy here is like losing two good guys. <laughs> oh, I'm going to remember that one. <laughs> oh. Uh, I'm sure that probably comes up every now and then in the kitchen. So yeah. that, um, did you feel you were described that way when you went back when you were long tong Yanni? Did no. You, know, you used to be a kitchen no, man? No, no. I feel like I did a good job. <laughs> he was, I, he I hustled. Was, he was a kitchen man. And he, uh, they called him Long Tong Yanni because he had some apparently <laughs> a set of long tongs that he used while working the grill. Well, that's you're working smarter. Why would you get your hands all hot and burned? You know, yeah. it's like, yeah, you use, use a longer tong. I mean, it's not like ridiculously long, just like you're, you're tell us about the tong. <laughs> I'm trying to think what's the standard? It's probably like an eight inch tong, right? Uh, maybe 12. And you're probably talking about those 18 inch. Like yeah, long pumps. Yeah, because that grill was deep and it was tall. It had like the uh, the <laughs> oh, refrigerated man, sliders underneath it, you know. Yeah. So even with my height, you know, when you'd reach over it, 
Yeah. You know, I had no hair on, uh, not that I have much now on the other side of my forearm, but yeah. I had none on my forearms then. Yeah. You got nothing to prove just by burning your arms. No. You ever think about just being in, just know, being in the kitchen here and seeing all this kitchen activity? Yeah, in the course of three years, I came in there not knowing almost anything. I had some kitchen experience, but really almost none. And we started off at, uh, how do you say it? Garmanger? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Salad station, basically. Running the fryer, doing salads, maybe a little bit of dessert work. And then work through, uh, we had like a fake wood-fired pizza oven. So there was, we'll logs, fake. there was some logs burning, but there's like a big gas element in the back, you know, shooting. Are you shooting. kidding me? No, I mean, I think that's pretty common, really. Um, gas assist. Yeah. Oh, that's the gas call. assist. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we did all kinds of apps out of that station. And then you come back over to the main line. And uh, I think I went to saute and then I ended up at grill. And then maybe for a little bit, I did some expediting. Right there at the end. What does that mean? We're basically, you're, you're just kind of helping everybody out and you're just calling tickets and, and just making sure that all the food that is on one ticket is going to be coming out together. Like you look down at the sa- saute guy and you're like, hey, dude, I need, you know, two linguinis and a capellini and a orecchietti coming up in two. And then you look at the grill guy and you're like, you've got those two hanger steaks coming, right? Yep. And then on down the line and just make sure that it's all coming together. And you're working with the front of the house expediter that's then kind of doing that and making sure that their waiter is there to then move that food out to where it's going to huh. go. So as a true restaurant man, Jesse, when you hear him saying that, do you, are you thinking like this guy knows what's up? <laughs> that's spot on. It's spot on. Absolutely. I mean, that's a bigger restaurant than ours. I mean, that's, he's got an inside expo, an outside expo. and a, you know, Yeah, on a, a really a busy line. night. We sat, I think, just over 100. And I think on a really busy night, we could, we would, really busy, we'd do 400. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you need you need all that that org- this people organizing to get food out on either side of it. So. Do you, are you getting nostalgic sitting in a restaurant hearing like the clanking and clacking and whatnot? When we we got to a little tour last night through the restaurant, when we walked down the line, I said just automatically went behind some people and just said <laughs> behind you. You know, at that moment, I felt a little nostalgia. You did. Yeah. One day I was I think I might have talked about this, but one day I was with Yanni and we were pulling out of a coffee shop and. A guy drives by pulling a drift boat, like a youngster pulling a drift boat, and it was clearly like a guide headed out in the morning. And yeah, he's like, "Oh, here he is, you know, heading out for a day with a client." And I asked Yanni, I said, "Does that make you nostalgic for your guiding days?" Thinking that it did. He's like, "No, taking some other asshole out for floating <laughs> the same stretch of river you floated for the last thirty days." <laughs> Uh, I must have been feeling a little bitter that morning. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the guy, the, 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 the human egret, talk about, I want you to cover the regulatory structure, and I want you to talk about how he's also a commercial gigger and what that all means. Yeah. I mean, flounder is a, a, a pretty interesting topic, I think, too, because there was a real problem with their populations a few years ago. Parks and Wildlife went in and implemented a uh, November moratorium on gigging. Okay. Um, during their main spawning run, um, and, and run that implies movement. Yeah, uh, they they supposedly run from the shallow bay in a flounder. I mean, if you, if you're familiar with the this is the southern flounder, the southern flounder. If you're familiar with, I mean, the way it's it's structured, it it's a very flat fish. It can I've I've gigged them in probably three or four inches of water before. Uh, but so they're in really shallow marshy bays. 
uh, maybe five or six feet deep at the most, and then they run out into the Gulf to spawn uh, oh. in really deep water. So why are they vulnerable out spawning in deep water? Uh, because they go in, as far as I know, really deep water, and they're hardly ever fished for in the, the actual bay. Um, you'll hear about people catching them off of jetties and piers a little bit, especially ones that are, are a jetty that leads out into the bay. They'll have to run through there to get into the gulf. Uh, but they spawn supposedly in very deep water, and they're just not really fished for out there. I, you know, okay. The vast majority of the fishing happens in the bay for them. But people hit them hard when they're moving hit them that hard in November during the run with rod and reel and also with, uh, with gigging. When and they're so, migrating out. Right. And they're, they're just more active and they're, they're in big numbers and you can target them at passes. So like where you know, there's water uh, moving out into the Gulf. And so there I was, got you. There was, uh, so they become vulnerable that way. Right. So they closed down gigging and they took the, uh, I'm sorry, the recreational limit down to two for rod and reel for the month of November. And then there's a, uh, a lower limit in the first two weeks of December as well. Huh. But gigging opens back up for those two weeks, but you can only gig two flounder. So uh, Captain David offers, he offers like, discounted trips during that two weeks. Uh, and that's a, oh, never mind. I was going to say it's a really good time to go. <laughs> <That'll>... <laughs> <laughs> oh. Anyway. It's, hor- um, it's a horrible time, right? Yeah. To go. It's a horrible time to go. <laughs> It's windy. Uh, yeah, it's windy and cold, and uh, the flounder are really small. And he uh, charges a lot more. Charges a ton. Yeah, <laughs> charges that December rate. Uh, but it, it appears that the uh, Parks and Wildlife uh, moratorium has worked. I mean, at least that's from my perspective. You know, I, I'm not a biologist, and I'm not a flounder guide, but the, the stocks seem to be up. There seem to be a lot more flounder now. Uh, so kind of a success story as far as that goes. Um, and I think that the, the gigging guides down there, they do all right without having November, you know, out there. I and mean, they can also go out and if they have their commercial licenses, they can go and get uh, flounder to sell it into the, the wholesale markets. And they, I believe the boat limit is 30 flounder a day. And they can also gig sheep's head and black drum. And so they go down there and, and uh, they fill boats with that. And that, you know, we... we buy some of that not necessarily from captain david but we buy some gig flounder here and there uh but it goes into fish markets and along the coast uh what do you do with the how do you like to fix the ones you get flounder uh my favorite way is to uh stuff them scale them captain david showed me the best trick but and this this is an amazing trick for scaling any fish is he uses what's called a curry comb. Are you familiar oh, with curry I was comb? told I was told to ask you about this and had it in my notes. Yeah. No, I had it in my head. Yeah, he uses a curry comb, which is Because Miles Nolte was telling me to ask you about this. Yeah. But I said a curry comb, and he's like, not just any curry comb. Huh. Well, I'm, I'm not familiar with the varieties, but... Well, uh, t- explain to me what it is, because I don't know. I think he used a brush of horse. Yeah. It's got those jaggedy... It's got those jaggedy... It looks like a souped-up hacksaw blade kind of bent. Mm-hmm. Four of them stacked on top yeah, of each like other in a half circle. Kind of concentric circles with a handle on it. Um, and that, that'll that take the scales off of a fish with so much speed. It's incredible. And any any fish that... Have I, you ever scaled like the, a bluegill? The spiral. Yeah, absolutely. That one. That's the one Spiral I steel horse curry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Miles Nolte, much as I love him, <laughs> that's just a regular Joe Blow curry comb. 
He was he was convinced. He thought I had a souped a, up. He thought a he had custom a job. Curry comb. Yeah, yeah. like an artisanally made. Yeah, <laughs> handcrafted. So he likes to scale fish with that. Absolutely, it's incredible. It'd probably I be mean, a little bit too big to just run that on a panfish. No, absolutely, you could do it. No, I've done it. Absolutely. Or, Order Absolutely. yourself a couple of those, Yanni. I will. Use your company card. You got to use a, one of those gloves, those cheap like fish cleaning gloves, you know, that are kind of like cut gloves. I use I them more just for gripping fish because they, you know, any slimy fish or just being able to grip. But if you were using the curry comb, it's really nice to have that glove in case you miss. Because, I mean, it's not going to hurt you, but it will scratch your hand up. So he good. likes to scale a southern flounder. For Well, you asked me how I like them, and I like to stuff them. But when you scale them, he's, they've got like little mini, mini scales. True, true. Densely packed. Yeah. But you don't, I mean, you got to take those off if you're going to oh, yeah. rust them No, off. I always skin them. Oh. No, you know, we, no. used, we, we used to catch them, we used to catch them uh, just fishing the, 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 the Gulf Coast of Florida. Mm-hmm. We would catch them kind of in a mixed bag with other stuff, just casting out in the troughs between the beach and the first sandbar. You just lay bait out there. We'd catch, you know. Now and then you'd catch southern flounder. Right. And I never did anything but skin them. You cut them off in quarters? Oh, no. Just talk about how you do it. Uh, just scale the fish. I mean, I like to, I just, I got it. Uh, I like to leave the heads on. Okay. Um, because when you cut the head off, you expose the tops of the fillets to, I think, too much dry heat. And so I just prefer to leave the head on. Um, you pull the gills out? Uh, yeah. Gill and gut. That's the easiest fish in the world to gut. They have just tiny uh, intestinal cavities. It's for, the, for how big that fish is, it's remarkable how small their digestive system is. And so you just go in there, gut them, gill them, scale them, and then you just run your knife along the, um, the lateral line, yep. which is on the top, the, the kind of the apex the, the of, the the, the yeah, of the fish. The dark side of the dark side of the fish. And then come in with a fillet knife and just uh, run along the rib bones that run. Oh, this is an exercise in like manual riding. Along the rib bones that run, you know, parallel to the cutting surface almost almost to the fins on either side and just open up a big pocket in it yeah i got you. i leave the bones in i know some people will try to will pull the bones out and make it kind of boneless and then just stuff that with uh usually crab blue crab and then lay it back on there lay the lay the so, so sorry the you're stuffing between ribs and top fillet or ribs yes, and exactly. Top? okay exactly i got an idea for the listeners for the listeners put put your hands together uh-huh or, or they could buy my book and look at the pictures. Let's do that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, plug your book, man. Yeah, it's the, all everything I just described. I just realized <laughs> I got I got pretty pictures. You've already written it out once. with <laughs> captions. Yeah, plug, um, your, plug your book. Yeah, uh, a field that came out um, in 2012 came out a long time ago, uh, and uh, a, a field, a chef's guide to uh, preparing and cooking wild game and fish. And so flounder is covered along with blue crab. And you show how to stuff flounder. Yeah, and and. Uh, to be clear, Captain David is mentioned by name in that book as well. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> there you go. Um, but, yeah, and there's pictures of him but what looking about the, like an egret. You, are you stuffing the belly side, too? Why not? No, no. Just, just leave the it top being. side, and then you just leave it, and then you uh, oil a pan so it doesn't stick to the pan, oil the fish, season it, and uh, stuff it with, you know, just tons of butter. Uh, I like to put fresh herbs in there, like thyme, oregano. Shitload of crab meat. Bay, all the crab meat you can afford uh, or catch. And, uh, and then just roast it in a hot oven. It's incredible. Or fillet it, and you get the four fillets off of it. And, uh, I mean, fry it. I- I'm sorry. But, it, you know, when, if you ask me what the pinnacle for most fish, like the best recipe is going to be fried. I'm sorry. It's just, it doesn't Don't get better. Don't apologize to fish. me, man. 
Yeah. I, I love fried fish with a passion. Yeah. And it's like, I'm hardly ever inspired to be like, I'm not going to fry that. Dude, I'm so <laughs> like, one of the things that just like pains me about the world is this sort of idea that, that there's something sort of wrong or that needs to be apologized about in certain circles about frying fish. I agree. Uh, tell us about the, uh, your breading. Cause I think that's, you know, it varies a lot yeah, in circles. Yeah. It's going to depend on the fish. Now, Are we moving on to frying? Oh, well, just frying. Well, I have one la- can I ask him one last quick sure. follow up? Do you think it would work to take your strategy? Have you handled halibut much? I'm sure you have to your restaurant, uh, man. It, yes, I have. It's been, it's been years. Could I you have. take a 10 pound halibut say? And do some big, super dramatic version, or would you never get that thing to roast through? Absolutely, you can. In fact, it's been done. There's a really beautiful cookbook by Francis Malman uh, called Malman on Fire, and he stuffs a, uh, a halibut, a probably about a 10-pound halibut, with pe- I believe it's peppers and onions, olive oil. Cuts it the same way you're talking about. Absolutely, and then wires it shut and then roasts it over a fire. So, I mean, yeah, like phenomenal preparation. You could... You could completely do that and you should but on your stuff flounder you're probably going to end up eating the scaled skin yeah right we're it's, on that it's a little sticky but i mean i like that yeah it's a good way of describing it yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's sticky it's Doesn't like it? a sushi wrapper yeah or that, oh, yeah. that seaweed one imagine it was a little bit thicker yeah it's, it doesn't really get crispy um but i like to leave it on as an insulation and i like the way it tastes and i i like you know i like chicken feet and things like that a lot so like that sticky texture is 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 fine for me you like sticky buns yes that's <laughs> that's different a little, Go ahead, bit, a little bit different uh but on 10 pound halibut you probably wouldn't be chewing through that skin i'm guessing i'm not sure you know what you can do with that skin and i've done it <clears throat> is uh i stole this from jack peppin jacques Pepin. Cause he does it with some other fish, but uh, Jack Pepin, he was ta- he like makes little crispies. So you, you take the halibut skin and just cut it, and you start to do it flounder skin. Basically, you're making uh, what's the word I'm looking for, man? Chicharrones. No, there's like a there's like a snack product that I'm trying to think of. It's the um, the dimensions. No, I'm trying oh. to think of the, the the dimension of the cut. Quarter inch wide strips, two three inches long. Yeah, what you is can that seize, snack product called? Yeah, you can, can season them. You can season them and fry them and put them on salads. Uh, there's a, a Gijon. There's a little strip of fried fish. Uh, no, no, I'm think it's, it's like a, a cut. It's a French. There's like name a thing. It comes in a container. It comes in a container like. Uh, is it? It's not like shoestring fries. No, what? The, yeah, it doesn't matter. But it's a, th- a nice thing to do with the skin. Like you know, if you if you. Let's say you broil a salmon fillet on the skin. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, when they go to serve themselves, they just sort of remove their piece of fish and leave the skin. And so when it's all done, you got a piece of foil or whatever with the whole damn skin from a broiled fish stuck to it. Mm-hmm. You can take that off, put it on your cutting board, and just cut it into quarter-inch strips. Mm-hmm. And then cut those down to two, three inches or whatever. And just throw them in hot oil, season them, salt them, and just throw them in hot oil. And they curl up and turn into a little chip. Yeah. That's a pretty good little chip. Sounds I'm sure like you know a, what I'm talking sounds, about. I mean, like on a pig, it would be a chicharron or a, a crackling. Yeah, exactly. But you don't understand. 
you understand everything I'm saying except this. There's a snack product that is the dimensions of what I'm talking about. Dimensions. Nothing to do with the taste snack or appearance. Dimension. It doesn't matter. Yeah, okay. I don't know if it is actually sold as like a salad garnish or if it's just sold as like a potato chippy kind of a thing. Yeah, you know it's, what else would be exactly like? It's exactly that long. It's got like a little wave to it. Yeah. I can't even tell you what the hell it's made out of. doesn't it's matter. A potato or corn. I described product. it so clearly. Yeah, we get it. I got it. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. I, for one, use it on all of my outboard engines up in Alaska every year. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Okay, ask your stuff about Brian. A, oh, ma- bre- a master breading. chef's perspective breading. on bread. Breading. Breading. I mean, it's, gonna, it's really going to depend on the fish, like catfish, um, a lot of freshwater fish, like cra- crappie, white bass, 
and specifically catfish, I do a mustard batter where we'll, I'll take a batter. Well, I mean, not a batter. Well, it's it's mustard and buttermilk, and dip it in that, and then dredge that in cornmeal. So technically, I guess it would be a dredge. Okay, I, so hold me back up now. Here, here I am. I got a dead catfish laying here. Yeah, let's just get serious. <laughs> There's a dead catfish. Yeah, flopping around still, yeah. not even dead. Yeah. Oh come yeah. on, we can't even skip to. We can't skip ahead to the. Okay, here I, am. I got a catfish fillet. There we go. Okay, do you trim them nice? Uh, I will. If it's big, I'll take a uh, fat and bloodline out of it. Okay, but if it's small, I won't. And I love the bellies. Like uh, if catfish is bigger than two or three pounds, I do what I call like a three fillet method, where I, I pull off the fillets off the sides. And I flip it over, and I take basically everything from the throat to the to the anus, skin that on both sides because it's got that crazy silver on the top yeah. side, um, and then you'll get two really nice big uh, chunks off of that that I think have the best texture on them. And if you if you get a, a flathead, absolutely. Oh, and the, it's like the, chicken tenders. It's like chicken tenders had sex with fish. Flathead belly yeah. is, is amazing. I think Parker described it as white gold. White Sorry, gold. white gold. Not, not not like chicken tenders had sex with fish. It's white gold. <laughs> <laughs> well, either either way, you should you should attempt it. And uh, so catfish, yeah. So mustard, uh, buttermilk, hot sauce if you want, and then straight into fine cornmeal from there. And but, then but it would slow down because you're making a little like a you're combining your hot sauce. Yeah, all the explain to me like I'm a child. Okay, um, the hot sauce. In about equal parts, buttermilk and yellow mustard. Okay. Um, in a bag, in a bowl, whatever. And you take your You're fillets. talking prepared mustard, not powder. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I like uh, catfish, too. I cut into strips. I don't like to do whole fillets. I like uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of crispy, like a thin layer of crispy breading to them. But I don't, I don't prefer to do whole fillets. Uh, cut that into strips. Uh, go into the buttermilk, mustard, potentially hot sauce mixture and what's then your, what's your hot sauce you like the one that we make here <laughs> also the mustard we make here but um you uh, i don't know you could use anything you want i think uh what is it crystal that louisiana uh that that hot sauce out of uh louisiana is really good what do you think about frank's yeah fine frank's it's good on chicken wings but i'm saying like uh, is that sort of, let's say a guy was just down at a at at the local rural grocery store franks and french's all the way okay yeah franks and french trying to cover then, for, i'm trying to cover for that feller yeah and and he's like oh shit they don't have buttermilk here just just use some milk man just like use some milk to thin it out you're fine okay just, so he got some franks some french's his kids milk yeah equal parts yeah okay. uh season your fish with a little bit of salt toss them into the mustard buttermilk mix and then you, it's really imperative that you have fine cornmeal because coarse cornmeal is not going to stick very well. It's going to come off, and that's that's. And that exactly. is well, let me hard tell you the real problem, man. Let me tell you the real problem with coarse cornmeal: that it turns black and is bitter. Yes, yes, yeah. It's, it's, it's no good. And it's I mean, it's crunchy. For, it winds up being like you get little pieces in your mouth. Yeah, it's good for I guess some cornbreads and things like that where you want that texture and you, you're adding a lot of moisture and fat into it. But no, no good for frying. Oh, but you know what also works really well is masa, like masa arena, which is dried uh masa that is then turned into a flour and it huh. is by nature very very fine and it's i mean it's a, it's a cornmeal product that's been nixtamalized so it has a slightly different flavor but it's very good and sometimes we'll do a 50 50 mix of fine cornmeal 
and masa. Um, but if you're in a pinch and you're in a place that sells masa arena and you can't find fine cornmeal, get that. You familiar with that brand, Red Mill? Yeah, Bob's Red Mill. Yeah, yeah, they sell a fine corn. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. If you're in your grocery store and you see like a little, they'll kind of always keep it all together. But he's that company's like the company that has all the crazy flour. Yeah, yeah. Another yeah. one I like to use I uh, use for the uh, squid is uh, rice flour. Rice flour is a nice breading. Okay, it's yeah, super light yeah. and airy. It complements that squid nicely. But I still feel like even with them, it's like they always have the coarse and the medium. But finding that fine ground, it's hard. I don't know what the deal is. I have to, I ask and just have them like order in six bags and buy it. When I see it, I buy a bunch. Yeah. And there's yeah. actually, there's a, there's a grocery store here in town that has very fine cornmeal in bulk. And so I, I go there and buy I used to buy it in bulk and I'd buy big bags of it. And then if I can't find it like that, then I would check around and see who carried that Bob's Red Mill. Yeah. Because he's got medium and fine. Yeah. Um, but re- regular uh, run-of-the-mill cornmeal is not great for frying fish. Right. So there we are. We got our little mustard hot sauce. Yeah, but what, about this, what about this tone I got off you about the batter? What's, is there something wrong with the batter? I'm just not a big batter guy, man. All battery. And then, like, <laughs> like, it holds so much oil. And then the batter comes off. And there you are, just like a naked hunk of fish because the batter fell off. Sure. I mean, just yeah. makes me feel like I'm at Long John Silver's. But it can or be, it can you get, be at great. Long John Silver's, you get through all that batter and realize there's not a fish in there. <laughs> they right. just, they like batter, batter. They like get a drive in a batter and batter that and then fry that and you open it up and it looks like. Like a fried pancake. <laughs> yeah, it's just. Yeah. I, I like it sometimes. I think I kind of really like fluffy white fish, you know, like. With the big old greasy I think it has to be done right. I mean, about it when you make a batter, it has to be a little thinner than you than you think it needs to be. It needs to be ice cold uh, before it goes into the fryer. The batter has to be super cold, and the fryer has to be super hot. What's hot in your mind? Uh, I would say pushing three seventy five. Okay, like really hot, and cut your piece of fish. You think that's really hot? That's my that's my go to temp. Yeah, that's hot for fish. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, because oh, man, hot. make you they're they're nice like. Perch fillets, everything like that, three seventy five. Yeah, it's a small. I mean, it's a smaller. Fillet, yeah, but you get like it's like whap. Yeah, crispy. You open it up, it's still like nice on the inside. Yeah, yeah. You're talking you like, get, a, like a minute in the fryer. Yeah, right? you can't go. Point. You can't go like wander off and do something else. I mean, you're right. standing there staring at it. Sure. Yeah. I, but I think yeah, a good batter, and I mean, we make ours here with just I mean, beer and choose a, a good flavorful beer, flour and baking powder, and the baking powder makes it expand and it helps with the crunch a lot on it too you got to fry it hot and you got to fry it long enough and then it will you you'll get it i mean you'll get a good textural experience out of it if it's done just right but that said i totally prefer my cornmeal uh sometimes i will bread fish with flour egg wash and breadcrumbs yeah and do it that way especially if i'm going to serve them sauced like put a sauce on top of the fish like when i serve it like one of my favorite dishes is a Veracruzana sauce. So like a tomato, olive, pepper, some chilies, garlic, um, cilantro, parsley sauce. And I love to do fried fish that's been breaded in breadcrumbs. And then it's got that sauce on top of it. It holds up really well. I mean, you can use panko or dried bread or whatever you want. But uh, there, was, there are some times where I will, like what we call standard breading procedure of fish, or flour, egg, and then and breadcrumbs. That's yeah. good, too. Well, or flour, egg, then cornmeal. Sure. Because if we're doing, like, catfish sandwiches, 
like where it's a big fillet. Because mm-hmm. see, when you cut it, like if I had to do it one way, I'd always cut them up, small pieces, mm-hmm. and then cut at that angle mm-hmm. on a bias. Is that mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say? Bias, to yes. create edges, right? Mm-hmm. So they crisp up nice. But when you're doing a whole piece, you have less surface area. And so you feel like you're not getting the, the amount of breading you deserve because the surface area is bigger. So then if we're doing like big chunks of catfish to make a sandwich, then season the filet, egg, or sorry, flour, and then you got something for the egg to stick to, mm-hmm. then in the cornmeal, and then fry it, and then you get a hearty crisp to help because it's such a big piece. Right, like a shell. Shit, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, okay. And then you put some pickles and shit on that sandwich. Mayonnaise. Yeah. yeah. Well, we make a little tartar. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, like chopped up pickles. Yeah. Make a make a like a tartar, but then put more pickles on it, and tomatoes on it, and I, some franks. I'm into fr- I'm into <laughs> fish sandwiches. I love fish sandwiches a lot. So yeah, yeah, you got my attention. Fried catfish sandwich. When you when you're doing your cornmeal to fry a fish, do you like to put some paprika and stuff in there to make it look nice? I usually don't. If I anything, I'll put black pepper in there. I do like a good amount of black pepper in there. Do you season the filet or season the mix? That's a great question. You season I mean, with anything that you're going to fry. This is, this is a pet peeve of mine. Is you season the thing you're going to fry. You don't season the powder that you're going to then dust onto it and get some approximation of seasoning on it. Like, well, I mean, how much, how much if you put... A handful of flour into, or a handful of salt in a couple, into a couple cups of flour. How much salt is going onto the fly? You have no idea. Why don't you just season the damn thing you're gonna fry? Like the way you like it. Yeah, just just put the salt on there, and then put the flour on it, and you then you're done. That's it. And yeah, that's, that's a good that's, tip. It's a oh, good way to another, make me angry here. Another fella uh, pointed out to us too: if you do that method where you have your uh, breading seasoned, is that the seasoning is bigger pieces than the flour, right? And so when it's just sitting in a bowl or a bag, it's naturally like the bigger stuff, heavier stuff is kind of going to the bottom. Mm -hmm. So your earlier fillets are getting less seasoning. And then as you get through your breading, shit's getting stronger and stronger and saltier and saltier. Right. Who's telling us that? Parker? Parker. It's gravity. Parker Hall. You want to talk about killing some pigs? (laughs) <laughs> is that a question and, and catfish <laughs> and catfish but i want to know do you ever just <laughs> the answer is yes <laughs> uh do you ever just go fish like seasoned and then cornmeal into the fryer like that simple no never no i i have trouble making the cornmeal stick appropriately um, I've, I've seen that. Um, I, I just think having that little light coating of mustard and the mustard brings acidity. And that's just nice. I mean, with fried, fried food, you want something to cut that. And you're, mm-hmm. you just, you're starting with a, with a little thin layer of acidity and just, it just gives the filet itself a lot more uh, like a spectrum of flavor. I'm having Saturday night fish fry tomorrow night when I'm home. I can tell you. I want some fish to fry. I got a lot of fish. You come over my house, man. We just brought a bunch back from Michigan. Oh, yeah. My wife just brought some back from I North got, Carolina. I got bluegills, channels. What else do I got? And flats. Old flats, but fresh channels and bluegills. Uh, while we're on oh, the subject and of frying. One, uh, one huge freaking smallmouth. Ooh. That's a good fish to eat. Yeah. Yeah. No, not like his trashy cousin, the largemouth. I don't know. 
They're pretty it's good. It's a better, listen, a smallmouth is a legit eating fish. See, I'd never really eaten them until I was in Canada and we were on Lake Huron and started catching these big smallmouth and out of state, non resident. I could keep, I think, two a day. And uh, we were, all I was catching was that and pike. And I was blown away by how good a smallmouth was. Yeah. Pike, too. I mean, they're a pain in the ass to clean, but they're really oh, good. good. So good. Um, but also, I mean, that's cold water. I mean, you, you can talk about the trashy largemouth, but I think it's just... I'm just joking about largemouth. But I've I do got, think I've the largemouth in Michigan that were fantastic. Yeah, they, you know, we, we used to eat them. We, yeah. I mean, we, we just, it was just like you didn't throw them back. But I feel there's a weed... We used to have... In the lake where I grew up on, where we ate a lot of largemouths off, we had three species of weed, seaweed. Uh, even though it's not the sea, lake weed. Milfoil, mm-hmm. which is an invasive, a weed that I don't know the name of. And my brother and I, who, who knows the name of every damn thing in the world, he didn't even know the name of it. And we made a note to find the name of it. We still haven't gotten around to it. And the third weed was skunkweed. And skunkweed would be like, almost grows like a carpet, like a grass. Once you get out too deep for the other weeds, there's not enough sunlight, then the skunkweed would grow down there. And when you ate those large mouths, and skunkweed smells like a skunk. Unmistakable. And when you eat in large mouths, there's some part of me, like I can taste, when I eat large mouths, I get an aftertaste of skunkweed. Even if it hasn't lived around skunkweed? Yeah. It's like a, a member. I don't memory. know if it's like psychosomatic now. Oh. But a small mouth, <clears throat> it might as well be a walleye. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Yeah, small mouth's good. It's also just titillating to talk about eating largemouth bass in Texas because it's so, uh, people get so uh, upset about it. You use that word titillating often? No, well, I mean, I think that using, my favorite words. using the word titillating to describe eating largemouth bass <laughs> is like uh, exponentially upsetting to, uh, to people that they don't like to eat largemouth bass. Yeah, because they don't like eating largemouth bass. And they, they don't like to hear that word. And they don't either. like that word. Yeah, they don't think, they don't think anybody should use it's that not word. The word. So, it's not a word they yeah, throw around. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's <laughs> like when I'm watching uh, Bassmasters, no one says titillating. No, no, no. I'm the gonna, commentators, never. Yeah, I think I might just like publish a recipe like titillating fried bass. <laughs> Uh, what else on fish? Have we covered everything we want to cover on fish? I, before we get off of frying, so oh, I'm, I'm really in, interested. Uh, how how do you how would you treat a shrimp? A shrimp for, uh, for, that's going to make it go to the fryer. Oh, a fryer fried shrimp. Yeah, um, that, yeah. Um, as far as the breading process, you can. I mean, batter. Not really. I don't prefer a batter. I think. Uh, Breadcrumb, like flour, egg, breadcrumb is probably my favorite. You, um, butterfly. Flour, egg, breadcrumb on yeah. shrimp. Yeah. Um, you can also do the uh, mustard buttermilk. Not to be, a, you know, just like a two-trick pony, but that's, that's also very good on shrimp. I like to butterfly them. I think that extra surface area is really good. Fry them super hot. And, man, it, like, it looks like you double your yield when you yeah. do that to some shrimp. Yeah. <laughs> I love fried shrimp. Um, my daughter also is a big fried shrimp fan. Um, Do you look down on people who make coconut shrimp? No, I've had it before. It's fine. Um, Dude, I love that stuff. It's man. good. I mean, yeah, it's it's it's. I love coconut though. So yeah, yeah. I, I it's kind of cheesy. 
It is a little. It's not cheesy. It's like cheese like in it. Nineteen. I don't put cheese 1980s in my mouth. Nineteen eighties. Right. Applebee's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Style. I love it, man. Now, I worked at a, a in a. Place on a place called the Idler River Boat. You ever go there, South Haven, Michigan? I was in South Haven. I was spitting distance from South Haven last week. Yeah, I bet that thing's still floating. It's a really cool. Don't know about bar- barge. Vincent Price used to own it. It was in like the 1904 World's Trade. Vincent Fair. Price. Yeah. Do you know what's a weird story, man? There's this guy that uh, was up in Southeast Alaska and looted a bunch of totem poles. Long time ago, people would go up in the 20s and stuff and loot totem poles. Um, I remember they like really tried to track down one of these totem poles they realized it was just outright stolen. And it wound up being in the possession of Vincent Price. <laughs> of course. Funny you mention him. Yeah. But go on. Um, I think they, we felt like we had a fairly sophisticated menu for South Haven, Michigan at the time. And this was probably like 94-ish. Um, and that coconut shrimp, man, it was like a top seller. It wasn't an appetizer. It was like, it was an entree that we had there at the time. <laughs> and we sold the shit out of it. People loved it. So you look down on it. I can tell. No, no. I mean, I'm not going to order it. I'm going to take just a regular, you know, standard breaded shrimp over that probably. But I mean, a little coconut shrimp, what's that? Some kind of sweet, sour, hot little orange sauce. marmalade yeah. dipping sauce. <laughs> yeah. Like some kind of like chunky jelly uh on the, yeah i get it I, I would i would eat it absolutely i'd eat it no i don't look down on it no. i got one more fry question for you all right are you like a peanut oil man well okay it, it kind of depends on where i'm at now for years here we fried everything in pure beef fat and i am i'm a big fan of if not all beef fat in the fryer at least some for flavor and texture it's like i can't really describe what what texture that imparts even frying crappies absolutely frying donuts we would do them in beef fat now once that cools you get a little bit of that you know that wax just similar to like what you get off of of deer fat how are you buying that volume of beef fat uh we get it from our beef producer there's there's no other place for them to sell it who renders it you render it we render it it smells amazing no it doesn't so it you're sticks. buying you're buying fat, Cases rendering fat. it out, and then making rendering out gallons of beef fat. Yeah, we still yeah we we still do and pork fat. But uh, I mean pork fat, beef fat, and then some kind of high temperature oil. Any of those works. Like if I'm, how hot can you get beef fat? Not that hot. Not not. I mean three seventy five is really pushing it. It'll darken it. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, peanut oil, I think, is is great for frying. Um, it's expensive man it is expensive uh and then for frying here these days we use a non-gmo canola oil which works pretty well and you like that yeah less expensive than peanut uh well we have to consider peanut allergies so you know even if it's just a one person in a thousand it it can it can kill them dead you know Uh, many restaurants won't won't use peanut oil oh that's interesting because the just the 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 tenacity of that allergy you know what's the when you're using beef fat like if someone fills up their deep fryer with beef fat deep uh, sorry they fill their deep fryer with beef fat and they cook some fish for their buddies mm-hmm. and then they put it on a shelf somewhere yeah, it's kind of it's if you've fried a lot of fish it's cached it's volatile yeah it's just so it's not like done. peanut oil where you can strain it and then right. store it away and cook some yeah. more fish next week definitely one of the downsides 
to that. I mean, you can strain it and use it a little bit, but uh, a lot of the time for frying fish specifically, I will use a mix of beef fat and at home, if I'm frying it, beef fat and peanut oil. Oh, okay. Which I, which I like a lot. And then how hot can you get the beef fat? Uh, pretty much like 375 because the peanut oil really helps bring that, that, that uh, smoke point up on the beef fat. So it works real well. Ready for a major gear change? Yeah. How, uh, we were talking last night when we were eating in this restaurant. Um, first off, tell people what we ate last night in this restaurant. Um, let's see. We had a, it's, it's beginning of summer. So we were, we started off with some tomatoes. We had a tomato salad with avocado, uh, with the venison machicado, which is a dried venison, uh, axis finished and shanks that have been, uh, shredded and then dried or salted and dried and some chilies, mint, and cilantro, and lime. We had the quark cheese with the grilled mushrooms and bread and a little ginger marmalade. And uh, we had the bread, too, the mesquite sourdough, uh, which is made with uh, ground mesquite flour, sourdough, and pecans, and served with whipped lard, uh, domestic pork fat with orange zest in it. Um, I'm trying to remember now. Just one more... Uh, one more thing. Wasn't there some rhubarb and something? I'm sure. Uh, I don't remember that. In the whipped lard. Yeah, there was some rhubarb in the whipped lard. Right. Oh, that was with the bread. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, you just covered all the apps, though. Oh, the Parisa. We had the raw. Oh, right. The raw axis with the the fresh chilies, lime, onion, and cheddar. That's all. It's ground and then kind of mixed up and served with the butter crackers. And uh, that's that's a real central texas dish right there it's a raw meat usually it's beef but i i love it with with venison your menu has my favorite sentence of all time on the menu where it says everything is from around here yeah talk about that well our, our sourcing here and is uh, is is pretty strict and i think these days you, you hear a lot about local foods and sustainable and this and that and uh, we have, since we've uh, been in business, which was 13 years, uh, sourced uh, entirely, I mean, we could say locally, but I'll, I'll, I'll say within the boundaries of Texas, uh, much of it coming from much, much closer than that. So all of our Even down your damn olives. Even the olives. Olives, olive oil, all the dairy, uh, the butter. Um, Texas wine. T uh, all Texas wine list. Um, and... All the Texas wines are, are made with Texas grapes, which is a, an issue here. There's a lot of wineries here that use grapes from somewhere else, which I don't consider to be a Texas wine. Um, uh, our beers are all made here. Um, all the meat, um, and we're, we're very selective about where we get meat, uh, whether it's domestic or wild. Um, and then seafood comes from the Gulf or some freshwater when we have access to the, you know, the very rare wholesale catfish trot liners you know they're they don't have websites you know it's it's really hard to get a hold of wild caught freshwater fish anymore there's a few fisheries i think up north and you know where you can still get crappie and walleye and yellow perch and it's just not like that out here. of canada yeah, yeah yeah um so freshwater fish is is tricky but you know shrimp and blue crab and and gulf fish is is widely available and then all of our fruits and vegetables uh, are whatever's in season or whatever we've been able to preserve. And uh, so, like, we won't have lemons or onions certain times of the year, and we just deal with it. 
but uh, it's fun. It's a really fun way to, to write a menu and really fun way to serve food. It just makes it simple. And we uh, talked about this before, but it's confusing to people when you say that you serve wild game because people know that for the most part you can't sell wild game, but Texas has so many feral has right. so many non-natives. Yeah. So talk about like the path of how a deer would wind up here in this restaurant. An Axis deer. Yeah. Or a um, meal, meal guy. guy or whatever. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I mean, to speak a little more to that is, is that these are invasives. And I think that these are great things to eat. Uh, as when he, whenever you eat a feral hog or an Axis, you're not, you're not contributing at all to anything that had to be fenced in or have a vet bill or anything like that or, or, or be fed corn or anything like that it's just you are you're just using something that's that's detrimental to our environment our you know our region right here and so the way we get the the hogs i'll start with those is they have to be trapped live and then they're brought into our processor live Uh, an inspector sees them sees that they're healthy they're killed he does another inspection liver kidney um, inside of the rib cage the membrane there he looks for spotting things like that Uh, and at that point uh, they get a blue stamp and they're state inspected. And so at that point, they are just a swine carcass and we can buy that and then sell it. And so we get uh, three to 400 hogs, equivalent of about three to 400 hogs a year between the two restaurants. Let me, and, let me stop you on that a minute. Yanni, do you remember the name of the episode we did where we, where we hung out with the Texas hog trapper? He does commercial hog trapping. The podcast or the... Uh... No, the TV show. Lone Star Pork. This is the title. It's on Netflix. Uh, let me check. It is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to see that process of trapping hogs. Yeah. We ate all of ours, but he sells them too. We're yeah. going. So the hog, that's, how, that's a hog's path to the restaurant. The hogs. Uh, and, and you buy it, when you buy it, uh, give me a ballpark, like, on the carcass, if someone wants to buy a wild pig meat, what's the, what's the value of that stuff? It's expensive. I mean, you're it's basically expensive. paying the same rate that we pay for heritage hogs, like really well-raised. Okay. So it's not bargain basement shit. I wish it was. I really do. And and it's ironic (laughs) that it's not that somebody goes up in a helicopter, kills 60 and lets them lay in a field. And then we're paying a premium price for the ones that have entered the food system. But I get it. I mean, there's people got, you know, they got gas money to get out there and check the traps and, and do all that. So then there's a, there's a, pretty inefficient system out there to get these hogs out but i mean one of my goals is to like come up with a more vertically integrated system where we can you know trap pigs process pigs and turn them into food that's more readily available to people i mean you could feed a lot of people with the three million hogs that we have here in texas especially since we're supposed to kill two million of them every year to keep their population static which we're not doing um, and so I think there'd be, there's, a, there's a, a lot of conversations that can happen about that. Okay. The deer, um, that, that's really cool in that there was a very a pioneering company called Broken Arrow Ranch. And they started years ago by taking an inspector with them. And they had two shooters shooting suppressed rifles. Uh, I believe now they do most of their shooting at night. And they have a refrigerated trailer with a guy that follows them and they go out into the field and shoot these animals inspectors right there they do this crazy electro stimulation where they basically hook them up to a car battery i got one of those machines man yeah, i've never opened it 
bleeds them out really quick, and then the inspector's there for the whole processing, and then they, they chill it down. They have X amount of time to get it back to their, their big processing hub outside of Kerrville, which is west of here. And, uh, and then it's sold all over the country from there. And there's another business now. And they shoot Neil Guy. They shoot Neil Guy. They shoot Axis. There's also uh, Psyca, Fallow, any of, the, any of the invasives, any of the exotic species. No white tail, to be clear. I mean, sometimes somebody will come in here and be like, you can't serve venison. That's illegal. And I'm like, it's not a white tail. And it's perfectly legal. Trust me. I'm like, I haven't been flying under the radar for, for 13 years on this one. You know, there's, I'm sure Game Ward would love to nail my ass if, if I was selling white tail. But I am not, sir. So it's... Uh, it is all exotics and invasives, which is, uh, which is great. I think you know. I think it's like you, what you're also getting is a really natural protein. I mean, these animals are out there living in on these big properties. And in the case of Axis and Nilgai, these are mostly free ranging. These are not sequestered beneath or behind a high fence, even a, a huge ranch. Most of these are because I mean, they're all over the place now and spreading. Um, and and the Nilgai live a very natural life they don't they don't eat corn out of feeders or anything like that they're grazing just like they should and uh it's a it's a really good pro protein and we're able to get uh, quite a bit of it you know they're big animals too so 800 pounds yeah a big one a really big bull I and mean, they're monsters they're so i was eating some of that the other day so, uh, some buddies of mine i was over at first light and they had a little wild game deal um and one of those boys had just been down to Texas and had some some nil guy meat. It's good, man. It's really good, and it, yeah. even the big ones. It doesn't. You don't see a real drastic difference between a, a, a mature cow and a mature bull. No, that'd be the thing. I mean, they're like, you'd be just as happy to have that as elk. Yeah, you know. No, I think it's. I mean, up there with elk, elk yeah. axis and nil guy. But I, I think axis being is is the best that I've had. I really like it. Um, they're big body deer for this area um so, i mean they're way bigger than the hill country deer uh and so you get a lot of meat off of them and they're they tend to be pretty fat and they're just they're so just naturally tender and delicious very mild they're also really good for restaurant applications in that your general customer is not going to be put off by the flavor of an axis it's very approachable do you uh have you had sika deer yeah or sika yeah you like those? Yeah. I think good. they're pretty good, man. Yeah. I mean, fallow, um, uh, Pear David's deer. Uh, Don't know what that is. Yeah, it looks like a big, goofy whitetail, like a monster. Uh, we get all kinds. You know, our, our guy in Fredericksburg will just call us and be like, hey, I've got this carcass hanging. And sometimes even elk, you know, there'll be an overpopulation of elk in an area, and they'll go out there and trap a few and, and uh, bring them in. And so we were able to serve elk. Elk, we're native here at one Yeah, time. we just had a big conversation about it'll be on this. Uh, you, you can listen to that episode with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Director, Carter Smith. We talk about the controversy around how Texas manages and handles elk, which is legitimately, in my mind, controversial. Yeah, I don't know much about it. There's, I mean, there's a, listen to the episode. Yeah. Uh, here's one for you. We talked about this. What is Texas cuisine? <laughs> yeah that's i mean that's a good one and i i i think i mean you'll get an different answers from different people of course um i think that you know we we cook with all texas ingredients and i mean most other cuisines in the world have been defined by their ingredients uh so like if you're Give me an in, example well in southern france like let's 
you, you're going to eat duck. Um, you're going to cook with duck fat or walnut oil. Uh, you're going to have some pigs. You're going to have uh, some freshwater fish. You're going to eat beans, um, onions, herbs, things like that. So, I mean, the cuisine is very defined by that. And just to put that into contrast, let's go to, let's go to Vietnam. And there you're going to have uh, a lot of fish, a lot of rice, a lot of herbs, a lot of uh, vegetables that grow in a hot climate, and a lot of fermented and preserved things be- because of said hot climate. And so that really influences the cuisine there. It's, it's spicy, it's pungent, it's very bright, it's very flavorful versus something in, in France, which is going to be a little more austere, but equally delicious. But the, the place really is influenced by what's available there. So in this country, or, you know, in Texas, I think we went at it in reverse. And, you know, for the past hundred years, we've been able to get whatever we wanted. So we, could, we cooked with whatever we wanted. And so we lacked a super definitive cuisine in that our ingredients never forced us into anything uh into it's like defining our cuisine here and there that's not to say that we don't have things like barbecue or more importantly the in, the influences of of immigrant cuisines here which i think are, are the most important thing about what our food is so in central texas specifically where i mean we're in austin right now and so that's almost kind of dead center in the, the mass of Texas. Um, there's strong influences from German uh, culture, Czech culture, because there's a lot, a lot of immigrants from Germany and Czechoslovakia came here in the 1800s. Um, and then really Mexican food, you know, Mexico being three and a half hours to our south, uh, a huge influence and uh, also as far as just the the weather and what we can grow here you know the the peppers the tomatoes the onions things like that thrive here so and we used to be part of mexico i mean it was we were i mean until texas independence you know in 1836 you know we were part of mexico and then we became a state nine years later and it's that that influence is very very profound which is why i was joking earlier that we're a Mexican and German restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it kind of just vacillates between the two. But I think it's good to, you know, give respect to both of those. And if you go south of here an hour and a half to San Antonio, and then it's you, you really feel that influence a lot more. It's beautiful. It's in the architecture. It's in the food. It's in it's in every aspect of the culture. But there's also German beer houses, or beer gardens down there, and like. Uh, men's choirs which is a, a thing in in german communities like you'll you'll see these right? ancient buildings that you know men still get together and sing and there's a bar i can of, see yanni doing something like that i've done a lot of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's amazing i mean it's amazing to be there and then next door is uh, a mariachi band you yeah, know? yeah. Like, that's what i think texas is i mean and that's not to negate in the other cultures that have come here also you know uh, vietnamese cultures is, is really strong um, there's, you know, just like with any metropolitan area, you get people from all over the world. And I think that's really important to embrace that. And then what we do here is we just use the ingredients that we have and then take any idea from anywhere else. Cause I think that's like, that's open source right there. We, we, we can use any idea that anybody ever had about food and just apply it to the ingredients we have, because those are our resources. I'm not, I'm not at all trying to imply that we define Texas food, but I, I think that 
since we are, for lack of a better term, such a melting pot at this point, that it's it's nice to just give in and say that's what Texas food is now. You know, we've got some distinct dishes like chicken fried steak, um, which is basically a schnitzel. You know, I'm sure that's where that came from. Yeah. Barbecue, things like that. Um, crawfish boils, you know, come from a little east of here. You know, that's Cajun, but it's a big thing here. Fried fish. Um, game, I mean, cooking game, I think, is also a really key ingredient to that. But You mentioned schnitzel. Reminded me of something I wanted to mention earlier and forgot to mention. When we're talking about seasoning meat for you. Before you fry it, yeah, we were making turkey schnitzel um, for Bo Jackson, the athlete. Yeah, who's a he likes to cook. He's a very opinionated cook, and I made him a piece of turkey schnitzel, uh, and he ate it. I said, "Would you like some more?" And he said that he would. And I go to make some more, and he goes, "But here's what I would like you to do." <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things he wanted me, he noted that I had salted his schnitzel after it was prepared. And one of his three requests was that I salt it before. And he had some other things. What were the other things? I got to know now. Because number one was valid. That he felt that the oil was a little too hot. Oh. That was one thing. <laughs> <laughs> which, we, which we know from the last hour of talking that Steve likes to run hot oil. He thought the, I can't remember. What, I can't remember what the third one was. Uh, you you got to remember the third one. This is pretty fascinating. I really can't remember, man. I can't remember what the third thing was. But he had like several suggestions. The the two that turned turned the burner down slightly. Salt is first. But it was like just unusual um, to be cooking someone something. I usually am watching, and when I see something I don't like, I just keep it in the back of my head unless it's someone i know very well right right then i would say like you know what y'all yeah. you know fella could try yeah i appreciate how forward he was <laughs> and what it, how knowledgeable about schnitzel he was I, mean, I had no idea very opinionated cook yeah that's cool but knows how to cook yeah. no the next morning i missed dinner because i was out hunting still um but uh the next morning he whipped us up some scrambled eggs man and Scrambled eggs are one of those things where a lot of people can really butcher them and you end up with some dry, slit, you know. And uh, Bo made some nice, silky, you know, like proper moisture level, you know, eggs. Yeah. Did you know that I make uh, the best scrambled eggs ever? <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Low and slow. Low and slow. Yeah. The best ever. Not French. for everyone. Yeah. French, but the French best, style. But the best ever. Yeah. Do you stir constantly? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I learned it from the great Escoffier. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what I said. French style. Yeah, that's exactly like that. It's almost like a, a lightly cooked egg custard. You just keep it moving. Yep. Yeah. Um, you got to have a rubber spatula yeah. that conforms, that easily conforms to the contours of one's pan. Yeah. Because you can't be having it. And you got to have a good pan. Yeah. I, my main egg pan i hide from my family <laughs> i keep it with the dutch don't say it <laughs> i keep it in the, though they're not they're not that ambitious i keep it in the dutch oven section of the cupboard right where no one they just don't go well, why would they ever need to go in that area this is not you know my wife hates to cook so she's never going to wander over to the cupboard that has like dutch oven stuff in it 
So I keep it there because when she carelessly scavenges around for a pan, she naturally goes over to where the pans are and then ruins those pans um, <laughs> by like cutting stuff in them and, and whatnot. And then I keep my scrambled egg pan secret. Tell, tell us about this scrambled egg pan. Teflon coated? You know Diamond? The, I've heard of it. The company Diamond? It's a good pan. Expensive. That's why you got to hide it from people. Can't be having... What do you think a Scoffier used? I don't know. For a pan? I don't know. Not that. Because, yeah, he and didn't not have... a rubber spatula. No. You know what? Here's the weird thing. You know the opera singer um, Bernhardt? I think Sarah Bernhardt was her name. Oh. Turn of the century? No. Turn of the last century? She didn't believe in eating garlic. Brightman? No. No. Um, damn it, Yanni. One sec. Yeah, Bernhardt was a French stage act- yeah. actress. Yeah. Oh, stage actress. He had probably had an affair with her. He was married, but maybe he had an affair with her. She wouldn't eat garlic. People had like a garlic phobia, and Escoffier was a proponent of eating garlic. And he kept secret from her that he would pierce his, uh, uh, take a big clove of garlic and put it on the end of a fork and stir her scrambled eggs using a garlic-tipped fork as a spatula. That's amazing. And she would love his scrambled eggs, and he would never tell her that he used a garlic clove to move it around the pan. Look at that. Deceptive, but... Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash me eater rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing right and you probably got rain gear but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day man i was just in hawaii and i had my columbia pfg solar stream elite hoodie with me and here's the deal we're in and out of the water all the time getting in to go spear fishing getting out taking the kids to the beach i'm not gonna mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? 
putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Yeah. What's your favorite animal protein and why? Uh, it, it's either, well, I guess I have to have a favorite. You don't have an opinion on this? I, well, I mean, I'm, I've got a top two that I'm trying to determine right now. Oh. I'm going to have to say... How about what are your two favorite animal proteins? I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, <clears throat> feral hog and axis. But everyone knows feral hog's no good. You can't eat the biggins. They're all dry, you're, right? Yeah, I feel like you're baiting me. <laughs> uh, you can absolutely eat the big ones. One of the best ones I ever had was 300-pounder. Yeah. Uh, the reason that people think you can't eat the big ones is because nobody tries them. It, it's, it's funny how, how that works, how when you just announce that if they get over 100 pounds or whatever this arbitrary number, this line in the sand that you've drawn with feral hog size, once they get over that, then you don't try them, and then you tell other people that they're no good to eat. And that's rampant in all wild game. Yeah. There could be multiple generations that haven't tried a hog over 100 pounds because somebody back there said right. that once they're over 100, no good. And so their sons and daughters didn't do it. And then that information yeah. was passed on. And I feel like that's something that we battle. Absolutely. Uh, and like, people are. As a brand and as a people that are trying to like explain shit is that we're just battling like, uh, what do you call that? Um, misinformation? Bullshit? I don't know. Oh. Yeah, but bullshit that's like go, like has been, inertia, been, cultural been, inertia. Yeah, been with us for generations. We, yeah, bias. It's because people are inherently lazy. Yeah. So if you tell them a thing <laughs> that allows them to be lazy, <laughs> right? We recently heard about a, a antelope guide, he American pronghorn. Okay, antelope guide in Wyoming, who guides about a hundred antelope hunters a year, mm-hmm. and they're line to people is that it's not good right and i can't remember the number but i think close to 100 of these clients food bank it right. don't use it themselves because the outfitter doesn't want to deal with it right and just tells them it's no good and they accept that it's no good they well they accept when in it fact it's I mean, one of the finest things right running around i mean I, like, I think tons of stuff's good anything with a hoof on it is pretty damn good 
It's yeah. like a good hooved animal that tastes like a hooved animal. It just means that they don't have to take it home and pull it out of their freezer in a year and a half after it's been freezer burned and throw it away. Because, yeah. I mean, I think that's what happens to a lot, a lot of a lot, game a lot. meat, a lot of fish, too. Um, that's why when guys, there's a guy who's uh, actively trying to, like, establish the value of the wild game economy. Um, uh, and look at the resource, like the resource of wild game in Canada and wild game in America, and, and what it does to the food system and how valuable it is. And I keep wanting to ask him if he's throwing in all of the, all of the lazy sons of bitches who bring it home, don't take care of it, knowing they're eventually going to throw it away, and then throw it away because it's now quote freezer burned. Right. Right, which is a little bit of a myth too. Which is also a myth, but because right, you could say, it, or well, instead of calling it freezer burn, we could say that one, it's not, or two, you didn't wrap it right. Right. But not to steer it back to hogs, but when no, people, please. When this people, is what we're here to talk about when people are given open season on something, and, and when you're when they're told that killing them is a good thing, you know, it's all it's an altruistic act at this point here in Texas to kill a hog, and so they become. I don't know. They're like they're like zombies and Nazis. Like it's you have you have all the uh, go ahead that you can possibly get to just shoot <laughs> like, as like, many. like Ben says, man, you have permission to take the gloves off. Yeah, yeah. And so, and at that point, it's it's just become <laughs> it's it's fun to go out and kill them. And and a big boar, and if it, the slightest justification not to physically lift it after you've killed it. <laughs> Is you know it's great. Oh, I just I just did some good. Not like I went down to the uh, homeless shelter and uh, cooked for everybody today. Good, but you know I I still did I did my part today. And I, I, that's the other we laugh about is like dudes who uh, go prairie dog hunting. Right. They're like, well, man, you know, you know, I do it for the, you know, do it for the ranchers. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so and like, if you went and asked a rancher, if you said, hey, man, um, I'm here. What do you need done today? Fix that fence. He's got, <laughs> that's gonna be yeah. low on the list of chores. Yeah, like, shoot, you know, see that old, see that barn? Can you clean that all out? Yeah, shoot a, <laughs> a ninth of a percent of the prairie dog population on my uh, on my land, or clean my house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, it's it's a thing, and I mean, I, it it bugs me to no end, you know. And I understand that all hogs can't be kept. You can't retain all of them. Uh, if you're going up and you're controlling them from a helicopter, absolutely, there's no way. But um, but if you're if you're going to tell me that you're not eating them because they don't taste good, then I mean I, I've got a lot of anecdotal evidence to the contrary. Well, you've um, got a restaurant to the contrary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's something you can do with them, and we and it, it just so happens that we shoot. I mean, most I mean mostly boars. Like I'm trying to think of the past few hogs that i've killed personally they've all been boars you know it's just it's not because you're selecting for boars no absolutely not i'll select a sow every time if I, but you those solo boars just tend to move around a lot more if we're hunting at night we see boars yeah if one pig comes into a field yep that's a boar um it's going to be rare that a sow is going to be on her own um but if if there's a group that comes in absolutely i'm picking out a sow and absolutely i'm picking out a pregnant sow because they have the most fat on them, and they tend to be the best. That, you know, that's the thing you hear people say at wet sow. Mm. But, man, uh, I got one one time, and there was two problems with it. Two problems happened to me. Uh, one was social. 
in that I was with a friend of mine and she wasn't a big hunter, hadn't been around it much. And here I am gutting it. And it's getting kind of dark out and I'm gutting it and I'm getting into it and I'm kind of like, nothing to see here. No. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, look over that way. Yeah. Because that could be unsettling yeah. to someone. Absolutely. The second problem is that this thing must have gotten into, like I was all excited because I knew this thing like a wet sow was good, right? This thing must have been eating something dead it found. Hmm. It tasted. You know, like sometimes you get, uh, you get black bears, like in, and when we're hunting black bears on the coast, you'll get black bears that they have so, they've been eating so much rotten salmon. I have no, no reference well, to that at all. But yeah, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like you'll eat it and it's, Tastes like fish. Right. To the, to like, the po- yeah, to the point where you smoked a ham that one time. Remember that? Yeah, ham? Here's a good story. You Probably smoked? told a thousand times. But I'll tell it one more. I'm smoking a bear ham at my cabin in Alaska, and I go to and I we shot it like it was early June. We shot and so salmon run salmon run hadn't happened yet, right? So not this year's salmon. We get a bear and uh and I go to my neighbor to borrow his smoker and smoke the bear ham in his smoker. When I return the smoker, I said, man, you need to clean the, clean that smoker. It's got so much like old salmon oil in it that it made my bear ham taste like, like rotten fish. He said, I've never smoked a fish in that smoker. There's never, a fish has never been in there. And that was the first time I had that experience of a bear that just tasted like fish. Right. Which a little bit has gradually turned me off of coastal black bears. But anyhow, this thing tasted like it had been eaten. Like I feel like it had gotten into something. Right. You know, and, and it does. It definitely happens. And I'm not, I'm not, I would never say that all hogs are, are delicious. But th- that's the only one I had that ever had any right. problem. Oh, I, I find it to be very rare. Yeah. And like I said, you know, we're, we're going through hundreds a year and it's it's pretty it's it's very infrequent that you find one that you would classify as inedible i tell the story a lot about snaring a, a sow one time um and it, uh, simultaneously while while that snare was running we we shot one of the same exact size they could have come out of the same litter one was uh they're they're probably about 80 pounds uh both sows same fat content and everything and we butchered them both ate the shot one the next day took home the snared one and ate some of that the next day and the one out of the snare was inedible and just uh, it had to be stress yeah i was going to suggest that yeah i mean it it was definitely and i think that affects them a lot as well uh when you're snaring them are you buying snares or making your own out of garage cable i I won't snare them anymore after you don't snare them anymore yeah it was you know i don't i don't need to um and i just it wasn't for me i just didn't like she she was just like so tired and worn out when I got up to her and I was just like I you know we did it because we needed a hog on the ground we were filming something and had to absolutely get a pig down and we were just hedging our bets with the snares but I I wouldn't do it again got you I met someone in Hawaii who snares wild cattle I don't know if it's legal or not whoa <laughs> yeah yeah snare cattle yeah. That's made, heavy cable. I made sausage out of a, of a South Texas uh, feral cow one time. Custom order. This guy came in and he had, his doctor told him he couldn't eat any fat or salt. And he brought me these like, grocery bags full of uh, 
frozen bits of like bone and meat from a feral cow in South Texas and asked if I could make sausage for him. But no fat and no salt. <laughs> Which the, the answer would be no. Well, I, I, I was like, well, I mean, I, I mean, I was like, I'm gonna just be up front and tell you the sausage isn't gonna be good. This guy is just—he was so desperate for any. He's just like, I don't care. I just want sausage. I mean, I can't eat anything now. And I was like, all right, I'll, I made it for him, and it was—it was awful. What'd you cut into it? We just put as many like spices and. and oh, so you didn't try to put some kind of like substitute for fat or, no. bi- or binder in there no oh, okay. no we just we just made a hundred percent ground lean, ground meat sausage dry the flavor can be good but the texture and the dryness gets tough flavor flavor the- might have been good with a little salt yeah <laughs> there was none of that in there either so uh a wet sow that's the right word right pregnant sow i don't know why they call them wet is wet not nursing oh is yeah, that that's what, what i yeah. thought yeah. oh no okay then what's, what's the word for one because what I've heard is you want them before they start nursing. I was calling it a wet sow. Right. That screws my whole story up. Pregnant damn sow. Pregnant. Yeah. 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 And yeah. Like, like if I see a sounder and there's a there's a a nursing sow that's obviously trailing some some little pigs, then and there's a pregnant one also, which there's typically going to be one or the other or both. I mean, there there there's only 23 days between when they give birth and when they go back into their estrus cycle. And they're going to get bred. I mean, if there's a population of them around, they're going to get bred almost immediately. Yeah. I mean, I feel, I mean, feel kind of bad. I mean, it's just like, what a life. I mean, that's the, I mean, the break that you have with piglets is 23 days before you're bred again. And then a little less than four months later, you're giving birth again. And those first ones are just, you're weaning those first uh, pigs off too. So, but I'll, I'll pick a, a pregnant one. I mean, it sounds, it's, it's harsh, but um, they have better fat. And I just think they, they eat a lot better. So what's uh, number two next to pigs? Axis. Uh, axis deer. Uh, I think that, you know, again, from a invasive perspective, they're, they're the best thing to eat around here. They're, we've seen a real explosion in their populations in the last year or two here. And, I mean, to really put that into uh, a perspective is the fact that I get invited to shoot axis now. I've had a couple people be like, hey, I, I've, there's just so many of them on our property. We come out and shoot one. Whereas if you go back five years, it'd be like, hey, do you want to come shoot an Axis? It's $1,500. Okay. And, but also, I mean, that's where, how we got into this problem is the vast amount of private land that we have here in Texas. And then when people either stocked Axis on their land or the Axis showed up one day, it was very valuable commodity to the point where they didn't hunt them down into a manageable size population and then one day it's like oh we should have been shooting a lot more of these and maybe not charging as much this obviously my perspective on it but now we're i mean we've gone from charging to inviting and if you drive west of here there's one highway that goes out to kind of the epicenter of where they were initially brought and you'll see two or three roadkill um, just in a in a thirty forty mile stretch of highway, there there's and you'll see big herds of them, and they 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 can be in huge groups, and uh, they they outcompete the whitetails, and they're starting to spread south and west, and so I think it's definitely time to get in front of those too. I mean, they're never gonna never gonna have the impact of a hog, uh, but I I think that it's should I shoot a whitetail or should I shoot an axis? Uh, if I'm going to be out there, you know, getting meat for you know, myself, it's like, I think an axis is the answer right now. For your own personal use. Yeah. 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 
Um, what do you like uh, when it comes to butchering? What do you like working with the most? Um, hogs are fun because they're all they're all different. I like that because you know I'm, I'm my second book is almost complete, right? And and we're it's all about feral hogs, and the approach that we've taken on it is how to what do you do with the hog that you've got on the ground? You know, without overcomplicating it because you can't. There's no recipe for feral hog. It's like, well, how big is that pig? Is it eight pounds or is it 320? You know, there's a huge difference in that. And applying uh, the same concepts to every sized hog or, or the different fat contents that they can have is going to lead to uh, mishaps in the kitchen. And then you're going to be less apt to eat them in the future. So I think like clarifying how to eat pigs is really important. And I think it's also a lot of the fun of it. What I really enjoy is that when you know you get a pig whether you've shot it or they or or they've brought it in here you don't know what it's going to look like it could be 100 pounds and lean or it could be 100 pounds and have two inches of pure acorn fat on it Uh, and how that hog looks is going to inform the decisions you make in cutting are you going to cut chops off of it are you going to throw the whole thing in the grinder uh never get bacon off them you can really uh, you know, this is a very common question in my uh, in my the feral hog butchery classes that we do is that can you get bacon off of them? And uh, the answer is yes, but I've probably seen less than ten hogs ever that I'd say you could get legitimate slicing bacon off of. To okay. be clear, like bacon that you could cut into a strip and fry and serve with eggs. Um, if you want bacon flavored product, then even a smaller thin belly, if it's only an inch thick or three quarters of an inch thick. You can take that off and still cure and smoke that, and then you can have bacon bits, absolutely, if it's got enough fat on it. But if you want like a legitimate slice, a strip of bacon to wrap around a dove breast or whatever, then it's going to require a very, very large, very fat pig. And so it's typically going to be a sow. And you don't see sows in the uh, you know, live weight, you know, probably 250, 300 plus, I think, before you start to get... Uh, bacon that's going to be worth it. Got it. And so it's kind of rare to see a sow of that size, although they are out there for sure. You came in to hunt. You, you were into food first and then hunting second. Mm-hmm. So like food brought you into hunting. Yeah. I always fished too. Oh, I mean, you always fished yeah. growing up. Yeah. And for me, like hunting brought me into food. Right. What, uh, what are your feelings about the intersection of those two things? Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm really excited about where it is right now because I think that it's like it's it's come so far, in that people think about food when they're hunting and fishing a lot more than they did even three years ago. Uh, you go back ten you know, years, and it's I, I go I don't agree, but go on. Well, I I think well I'm I'm coming from a perspective of being here in Texas, where I mean everything was was is treated in the same way. Feral hogs may be eaten. Doves may be eaten, but they're only eaten one way. Venison backstraps are eaten, cooked one way. Mm -hmm. Um, Just from looking at the divergence of recipes alone. Yeah, okay, I'll agree with that. Like the variety of preparations, but I think it's happening in a specific demographic. Certainly. Yeah, the variety Uh, of preparations, but but, but go on. Uh, I'll talk about my view on it some right. other day. And you'll probably know a lot more about that specifically. Um, I, I feel like people are, I feel like they're keeping more of their animals, or at least experimenting a little bit more, which 
is great. Um, I, I hope that you know the same thing applies to fish. But you also hear a lot about you know people, you know you talk to guides and they don't think that their clients eat their fish either. They want a limit, and then they don't eat the fish. And I, I think that's you know it's a real shame. I yeah, mean, not to eat fish. Wasteful, I mean, man. Eat fish as as much as you can while it's fresh. Eat it. Just just don't stop eating it until you have to freeze it. Is you know my policy. So that's the intersection. Oh, well. Um, like, do you, do you think the two like do you think the food, sort of like the the food community and the hunting community are in dialogue? I do. I think that there's, I mean, just think like about you guys it. come in here. Let me ask you this. Okay. You guys come into your restaurant who are lifelong hunters and they come in because they just want to get a better sense of what can be done with the stuff they hunt. Yeah. Is that like a client? Yes, absolutely. They're doing I mean, research. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we get people, we, I, I used to do a lot of different classes, you know, domestic pork butchery, uh, seafood, now I only do a feral hog butchery class just because it is the one it's in such a more extreme high demand than anything. Is else. that right? Really? Absolutely. And we, we sell uh, about two a month here at the restaurant. And then we, I, I travel around and do that same class um, over and over and over. How many students come into each class? Uh, here at the restaurant, we have 10. Uh, so you're running 20 people through a month on average and just, you get, just here. Really? Yeah, and it's and we sell that out no problem because that's I mean it's the elephant in the room. That's what everybody wants to know about. I got you. And uh, they it's it's just cutting. And, and is it mostly hunters or mostly people who would like to go hunting? It's eighty. Wait, I'm sorry. What? Okay, is it mostly people who are like, man, I've been hunting pigs my whole life. I'm gonna go find out how to better handle them. Yeah. Or is it mostly people who are thinking I would like to go get a pig, uh, but before yeah. I go get it, I want to learn how to handle it. I'll say that. 80 to 90% of the people that come to the class are in one of those two categories. And then it's kind of a, a split between new hunters and then established and, and established hunters. I ask everybody at the beginning of the class who here hunts or has access to be given feral hog and nine out of 10 people will raise their hand. Okay. It's very rare that somebody shows up just to watch a feral hog butchery. And then I ask where their land is, just because I like to know what kind of hogs we're talking about. Like, is it on the coast? Is it in South Texas? Is it in the pecan groves northwest of here? Um, to kind of get an idea of what you're dealing with. Um, and almost all of them have, you know, are hunting. And so I'd say it's a, a very high proportion of those people are hunters. And a very high proportion of those hunters have been hunting for a long time. Do you feel like with the restaurant and with the classes, is there a... Um thing you're getting at like if you die they'll chisel something on your <laughs> tombstone like this man taught loved, demonstrated loved pigs man did he love pigs uh with you know this man would never shut the fuck up about wild pigs i think uh yeah i i i'm pretty i'm you know i think that's my the feral hogs are, are really a cause of mine. You know, I really like to promote the eating of them. And I, I, I just see them as a resource. And I, it's, a, it's, it, like, it's a resource. And then the more we use of that, the less of another resource we use, less of someone else's resource we use. And, 
it's it's just a, a win 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 you know and it's like i'd love to debate a vegetarian on the ethics of eating feral hogs because I, I would like to hear the argument it's like well do we put them in a big feral hog preserve uh, well yeah that's what we do with wild horses yeah and they would argue that it's a that you're ending the life of a sentient being and causing it suffering and that that sentient being shouldn't be blamed for the fact that we turned its ancestors loose on the land correct now you get here there's a yeah so then that's where it gets tricky but here we are so we got to reckon with this and that's where people are um that's where those arguments start to fall apart because they'll be like well yeah because they're overpopulated yeah because they're non-native and you go like well what about the sentient part Mm -hmm. because i don't think that you feel that way about grizzly bear hunting right and they're sentient too right and and so they're like i'll end that sentient life because i don't like that one right um we were talking about eating crickets last night yeah and the, the movement to eat more insects right and i was like a bite of crickets you're killing so many things with each bite yeah it's too much death it has a lot of weight yeah it's like all those little souls hundreds of right. them hundreds of them in one piece of cricket flower what about caviar yeah that's just guess that's, a, that's a little stickier pop, 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 pop. <laughs> <laughs> death yeah <laughs> death upon death oh yeah so uh plug plug um we're gonna wrap it up because you gotta leave to go fishing yeah plug <laughs> plug your uh double plug your book plug your restaurant and plug your class yeah um and then plug that guy again no don't plug him again yeah i'll see him i'll see him soon enough he's gonna be pretty excited about this oh is that right this mention oh yeah, yeah. he's he's a really wonderful guy too um, he's one of my, you know, if you go with guides and they're just not, they're not fun, you know, it's the worst. Uh, he's, he's just genuinely nice and he obviously loves what he does. So that's another plug for, uh, well, you'll have to hit rewind to, to, to hear the name of the guide service. Uh, the book is a field, uh, like, like I said, we, we put that out, um, that's seven years ago, uh, that that came out. And, you know, it, I, I look back on that as being, you know, when you look back on anything, you're like, oh, I would have done that differently. But what I like about that oh, yeah, was I was sure, fairly man. new to it. And I think that having a perspective of being fairly new to something gives you um, a, a good deal of empathy to other new people that are new to it. That's a good and point. So I, I like that. Um, I'm really, I'm, I'm proud of it. And uh, the, the next book, I, I think, is, is much more refined. We know a lot more about our audience with this one. Uh, and it's all feral hog. Um, and we're, you know, we're in the final kind of design stages of that book and, uh, we're real proud of it. It's got a lot of recipes. It's got a lot of, um, detailed butchering diagrams and a lot of information about what to do with pigs. It's, what are you going to call it? Uh, it's called the hog book. There you go. Yeah. Not, the, not the wild hog book. No. Well, a chef's guide to hunting, preparing and cooking wild pigs. Gotcha. That's okay. the subtitle. So just trying to keep it simple and. You know, like I said, we've, we've got the different categories of hogs that are going to be in there that you, you'll come across from a tiny pig to a big boar, what to do with all of that, um, how to combat the gaminess. Um, Is it organized? Tiny pig? Small pig, medium pig, <laughs> large sow, large boar. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, which is 
what I find to be like the general categories that make it more approachable. So yeah. you get a big style down, flip to that chapter, and it's going to go over what you need to or what likely you'll you'll want to do with that hog. You ever hear a dude Clayton Saunders? No, he's an interesting guy. Divine meats, divine meats, in, in oh, divine, in divine, divine yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I know. Well, I mean, I I didn't know his name, but definitely they're a huge processor, uh, yeah. mostly export processor. I think for wild hogs. Yeah, man, that dude can cook a pork shoulder though, man. Yeah, holy shit, that stuff is good. Yeah, remember that? Yeah, I, I mean that is a, a clearinghouse for pigs in South yeah. Texas. It's not. We too- hung out with him. We brought we, we brought some of our own pigs in there. We caught them up, and then he cooked us some. Cooked the sow shoulder on his yeah. pit. With a mop. Yeah. We actually put his mop in our cookbook, like Clayton Saunders, Divine Meat Mop. That was good. Yeah. That dude's good. Yeah. I mean, they can be great. He knows a lot about pigs, too. Yeah. Yeah. You should hang out with him someday. Yeah, I definitely want to connect with him. So you plugged your book. Yeah. You plugged your next book. Tell people about your restaurants. Uh, in Austin, uh, we've got the two places. Where we're sitting right now is Daidue, uh Butcher Shop and Supper Club. We've got a little meat counter here, and then... As we kind of discussed, like uh, our our focus on local ingredients, uh, menu changes daily here. We're open for lunch and dinner, and then downtown we have a, a little taqueria, uh, like dead center downtown, kind of close to the river. It's in a food hall and it's a small little spot. It's got uh, a little wood burning grill, and we just serve a pretty small menu of tacos um, and a couple little sides. But it's, you serve Axis Deer and Neil Guy and Wild Pig in there? There, it's a uh, feral hog and Neil Guy okay. down there. We don't have any beef on the menu at all. It's uh, We do a, a, a venison taco. It's, it's like I said, just a tiny little menu. We've got some, some good chicken on there, shrimp, uh, mushroom, two feral hog tacos, and a venison taco. And that's pretty much it. What's that place called? Daidui Taqueria. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So the Italian word followed by a Mexican word. <laughs> <laughs> It, yeah, it's r- ridiculous. I've, I've, I've dug, uh, I've, I've made my bed. I got to lie in it now. So, uh, yeah, those are the two restaurants. And then we have uh, our the third branch of the business is the New School of Traditional Cookery, and that's mostly what I focus on. And that's classwork, butchery demos, um, kind of like hunting cat camp catering services, where we uh, will come out for however long you want, a couple nights, and we cook every meal. If you want to provide the venison or the hog or the turkey or the fish or whatever, we'll we'll just we're we're ready to improvise and do anything. And then we do classes during the day between hunts. Typically, you know, like what do you want to learn about? Well, we got you know we caught eight bass out of the pond and somebody shot a turkey. Cool, bring it on. That's what's for dinner. <laughs> and then we'll sit there and do as much as we can. We have a a van that's basically just a road show that's got anything that we'll need in it, and we can uh, improvise based on what you've got, and we'll. Uh, just try to bring our perspectives and help uh, people in, improve their cooking and processing, things like that. And so yeah, that sounds like a fun day at work. It is the best. It is absolutely the best. And then we do some public stuff, too, where people can just sign on and we'll take them to a ranch that's a partner and I'll, I'll guide out there. And so, I mean, that, that's an amazing day. You get up, you guide somebody, maybe they shoot their first deer, their first pig, and then you, you cook them lunch and then you do a class and then they sit down. And eat with all the guides and have a big dinner at the end of the day, you know, based on what we've got. And, uh, it's a it's an amazing job. I'm very lucky. But that's primarily what I do now besides kind of bounce between the, the restaurants and um, is, is organizing these things. And we, we go all over the state and probably next season even beyond. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. How do people find that? 
Uh, it's all on the Daidue website, D-A-I-D-U-E. Uh, if you Google that, it'll come up, and uh, all three of those businesses are on there, and all the information and uh, you know press and, and different packages that we offer. Hit us with the proverb again, the Italian proverb. From two kingdoms, of na- from the two kingdoms of nature, choose food with care. Yeah, like that. Got any final thoughts, Yanni? Dang. So many. I don't have anything organized. My final thought is we should introduce introduce. Uh, that would Corinne. be my final thought. Oh. Go ahead. Chris <laughs> <laughs> Schneider. Chris Schneider. Been sitting here. Yeah. Patiently. Yeah. Not saying a damn thing. I was trying to figure out, you know, the best way to slide in. Didn't want to bring Oh, did you want me to do like a flat out intro early oh, on? No, well. <laughs> I just wanted to all of a sudden have your voice. <laughs> come in and, sh- and surprise people like where there's an intruder <laughs> Krenn's our new podcast producer you know working on all kinds of stuff yeah including what I now think is the have you listened to Cal's Week in Review Mm-mm. it's the best thing on the internet alright it's the best thing that a person could possibly get for free and it's better than 95% of the shit you could buy in this world I will I will uh, listen to it on my way to the coast. All you need is 20. You'll be able to burn through. It's 20 minutes long. Uh, I got three and a half hours to kill. Your daughter will like Well, it. there's what, seven episodes? Yeah, 20 minutes long. Yeah. Or so. It's the week in review. All right. My kids love it. I'm on it. My, it's my kid's favorite show. Yeah. Because they like the sound effects. Oh. There are those who would have you believe that the sound effects are annoying. <laughs> but they're not. Because it makes kids like it. Okay. Cal's Week in Review. Cal's Week in Review. I, I'm going to binge it. Best yeah. thing on the internet. Yeah. All right. Oh, I did have one follow-up question. We got enough time? It's like 11 right now. What time did you say you Tell us something, Chris. Yeah, we're good. Now that you've been intro, don't, don't waste Yanni's right. time. All right. Did um, you like the, uh, your supper last night? The supper was exquisite. <laughs> Do you use the word supper? Supper. Yeah. Uh, it's a supper club. More likely dinner, but yeah, appropriately supper. Um, it, was, it was incredible. It was like a whole explosion in my brain at one point you hit the table and used the swear word i did i did (laughs) she hit the table and used a dirty word (laughs) i did a little uh it was so good did a little happy dance um (laughs) no i mean i think what you're doing here jesse is incredible it's like it's like a an artist studio combined with a laboratory and i mean for me it's just everything on the menu or so many things on the menu you know, I think the average person doesn't know you can you can eat that. Right. And that's kind of what that exposure is, you know, that it's not just the the standard stuff in the grocery store. There's just so much more that is um edible and, you know, delicious. Um and it's just a whole kind of education. I think it's really inspiring should be inspiring for people to look around to see what more they can consume instead of, you know, yeah. the standard iceberg lettuce not to knock iceberg lettuce iceberg's awesome but i I mean i really appreciate that and that is 100 percent our goal here Mm -hmm. is for Mm -hmm. people to just realize what they've got around them yeah i mean you have a a root that grows around here that you said is you know you make tea out of i mean there's just they grow mangoes in texas i don't know if people knew that i didn't know that but holy shit get the mango sorbet that stuff will blow your mind so good what else you got for concluders? Bring it back or all the way back around. You're bringing her around to taking. Uh, you tell me. To, you tell me to bring nope. her around. Nope, nope. Oh, I am. Oh, okay. I'm going to. Because you know I could. I'm do it. setting it up. <laughs> <laughs> Never a doubt in my mind. Um, 
talking about educating people and using more of the animal and bring it back around to in the beginning we were talking about taking hearts and livers Go at, on. at a gut pile. Go on. Yeah, I got you. Is there anything else <laughs> that you take out of that animal that's, you know, forget about the shanks and meats and bones, sure. but anything else is heart out and livery-ish. Yeah. And then what do you do, what do you, what would you do with it? Uh, call fat for sure. I love call fat. In fact, we, we cooked a, a boned out feral hog country rib yesterday and then part of my interruption have you also heard it called uh lace fat or leaf no leaf is different leaf is different leaf is the is the 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 waxy fat the solid fat on the Uh, kidneys and stuff around the kidneys that's leaf got it and that that's rendered into lard we definitely if you get a big pig we that stuff's pure gold um and it's a it's a really useful softer fat it's not waxy uh the call fat sure and def- i mean if, if we can get it if it doesn't tear or if if i need some and then sometimes the kidneys we'll pull the kidneys out uh we make boudin i mean it's it's funny because like our almost our entire oful cooking game is is sitting around boudin if you're familiar with that like that spicy rice and oval sausage it's that's from east to here right that's like a cajun dish it is um my director of operations uh for the for the school Morgan, she's from uh, East Texas. She's from China, Texas. So they grow a lot of rice there. And so the rice-based sausage is factors in pretty heavily. And she is the master at making really awesome boudin with any, any liver, guts, whatever, from, from any animal. So we'll take the heart, the liver, uh, the kidneys, and then maybe a little bit of like fatty meat and, and boil that down and then grind that and add that into the rice. And uh, it... I love that part of the class because people are like, I'm not going to eat that. And then they eat that. They're like, this is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Kids will eat it, you know, if you don't make it too spicy. And so, yeah, it, it's just funny, but like almost 100% of all the offal that we, we pull just goes into boudin because it's, it's just, I think, the best way to. I got to try that. Yeah, it's good. Well, what about the call fat? Uh, I like it for wrapping stuff. In fact, I, my favorite way to use call fat is to cook something until it's tender, like a shank, uh, and then completely chill it down maybe rub that down with something that's delicious that's like sweet or sour or fatty or whatever and then wrap that in call fat and then grill that until the call fat's crispy yeah and so you've got free tender meat on the inside i'm giving away one of the best recipes in the book right now too um the one we <laughs> tested yesterday um and then you and you uh and you just cook that until it's uh, nice and brown but there's one secret step that you have to take otherwise it'll be disastrous <laughs> so you the have step to buy you gotta the take, book to know <laughs> you need to yeah. make sure to not Don't have a big away. sip of ice water after <laughs> eating along it. those lines uh, yeah but yeah it'll be included in the book you had a secret to cut the waxiness no i'm just full of shit there's oh. no secret oh so that's just he, it he, just he's trying, trying to, to get people to oh you're book. just trying to lure people in yeah. uh, uh, oh go yeah, ahead. we found that with that call fat you can definitely over, overdo it you put too much on there, yeah. and like you'll never get it to crisp up. You'll never yeah. get it to really cook through. But yeah, you got to. But I mean, you got to cook and cook and cook and cook it. I mean, yeah. it'll eventually kind of render out. But yeah, it's easy to over apply the call fat, and it's fun too to wrap stuff in that. Yeah, but you're doing two things, right? Because you're sort of basting then the yeah. internal meat with yeah. that the drippings. Oh, it worked like a charm. Yeah. It was really good yesterday. You know that that trick of it's not something a lot of people do is cook something one way. Like braise something down till it's tender and then put it on the grill. Yeah, we do it all the time. Because like deer ribs. Yeah. 
Reese cut the deer, like leave them all, leave the whole damn thing on the bone, cut it up with a hacksaw or whatever. Yeah. And then cook them, braise them till they're tender, crock pot them till they're tender, right. and then take them out, put a mop on them, and, and grill, grill them. them. Yeah. Oh my God, and it's good. My first book. It's I, a lot of work, right? People are like, oh my God, you know. It's, it's not that much work. No. <laughs> and what's nice too, I've realized. You can do it ahead of time. That happens with that method is that um, if you like take them, once they're done braising, you take them out of that liquid pretty quickly. A lot of that tallow is being left behind. Oh, yeah, man. You render you know, the tallow and, out. And so then yeah. you're not dealing with that right. waxiness so much. Yeah. That was a recipe for my first book called Cheetah Ribs, where we just poach off feral hog ribs that are kind of lean and then grill them and, yeah. and mop them with. Call them cheetah ribs? Yeah. Uh, we started doing them in pressure cookers, too. Yeah. You get it done quick, but you got to be careful because if, like, if you go five minutes too long. They'll fall apart on the grill. Yeah, and then you can't get them out. Yeah. So I kind of like would rather take a little bit of time. My brother, Matt, he's got it pretty dialed with his pressure cooker. But I'd rather take a little bit of time and get them at just right. Because a lot of times you're sort of like lifting them out with a slotted spoon and, and trying to grill them and shit because they just want to cool them off, fall apart. Do it ahead of time. Pull them out like of whatever you're doing and just cool them all the way down. And, and then they get, back up. Yeah, they get, they get firm. And then you can just slap them on the then grill. Then you can handle cold. them better. Oh, yeah, yeah that's absolutely. A good, that's a hot tip, yeah. man. You know, we're going to do a hot tip-off. I don't know if you know this. I didn't. As soon as we're done, we're going to do a hot tip-off. You should have saved that. For I should have saved that. For the and hot then tip-off. My, <laughs> I bet Jesse's got one or two others. Also, because my curry comb. <laughs> that, dude. We're going to do a hot tip-off, and you already wasted all your hot tips. I'm a little. Uh, There's no reason that he can't do these things in this hot tip-off, these two items. They could appear twice. Sure. Okay. We'll do a hot tip off right now. It'll go on Instagram later, and people will get to see. They'll scroll back through the feed. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do a totally new one. And they'll get to see if you're like a if you're like a one trick pony or not. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna crush you with the tip. <laughs> oh, hell. All right. Thank I think you. that was unwise, Jesse Jesse Griffiths. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. hearing from chef jesse griffiths on our podcast you have an opportunity to watch him on our new fishing series on youtube it's called das boat stay tuned for jesse's episode of das boat on august 22nd i'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet you can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.